Today's podcast is loaded. Our NFL playoff weekend preview. We revisit our playoff draft for NFL teams. Check out Kyle in this one. We're also going to talk to Luke Fickle, the head coach of Cincinnati, on what he learned in his one year at Ohio State and what he's learned after playing Alabama in the college football playoff. An incredible year for the Bearcats. And Chris Mundy is the showrunner, producer of Ozark, season four, coming out on Netflix in a couple weeks. And life advice. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Bai has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Bai Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose Bai. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Bai and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbai.com. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to open with today, but I knew I had to do some NFL. But I'm like, you know what? I probably should go out, get something to eat, leave the house a bit. Wow, Golden State, Milwaukee's on. Okay, that didn't go great for Golden State. Uh, and that was Milwaukee doing that without Drew Holiday. Uh, that was that was scary. That was scary stuff. But with no Draymond Green, you know, I don't know how much we can put into it, but at least for a night there, uh, what could be a potential finals preview. It'll be interesting kind of how this game is treated if that ends up being the finals preview matchup because that was horrifying uh, if you were Golden State. So, Shout out to Milwaukee, who I believe now 16 and three when they have their three guys. Uh, but again, Drew didn't even play last night. They've had DiVincenzo back. And if you look at where Milwaukee was after kind of, hey, we just won it and we're starting the season early to like another point after their their start was kind of lingering around 500, uh, the Bucks are, you could argue, are actually kind of horrifying. Um, but we'll see. We'll see because without Draymond, I know that we can't fully, fully. You know, that to me is not a, hey, this is Milwaukee and this is Golden State and this is the gap between them um, because no Draymond and then, you know, Clay still slowly working himself back in. And Steph's been struggling now for a couple of weeks and the offense now for almost a month has been bottom third for Golden State. All right, let's talk football because that's more important because we have the postseason starting. We get two matchups on Saturday, three on Sunday, and then a Monday nighter here in Los Angeles. I'm going to go through all six games, some intense research, some not as intense. I'm going to give you my picks, and then we're going to go back and revisit our playoff draft, which was uh, with all three guys here, Kyle and Steve, that we did back in November. All right, let's start with Kansas City at Pittsburgh. Um, you know, Kansas City has a couple issues. The offensive line and the right tackle position. Uh, Tyree Kill clearly hurt closing out the season. Uh, but they met three weeks ago, and it was 36-10. All right, and Watt played... I think 55% of those snaps, but just Pittsburgh offensively, I have a hard time believing they're going to go into Kansas City on a Sunday night and 
and pull this one out. I just don't. Maybe they keep it closer because the Hill dynamic changes a bunch of things. Um, but no surprise picking Kansas City at home against Pittsburgh's offense that I just cannot fathom how they'd be able to keep keep up with Kansas City even without Hill. Okay, Pats at Bills. That one's your Saturday night matchup. Um, the spread on this one is interesting, and I'm going to point this out because I gave it out as like the pick that doesn't make any sense. A lot of public money on the Bills, not the most. The Bills are minus four at home. Apparently, it's going to be really cold again. Uh, I put more stock into the Bills beating the Patriots a few weeks ago, 33-21. Josh Allen had arguably his best game of the season. Statistically, you could argue a few of the other ones, maybe even Kansas City, but it really felt like him having to do everything. He threw it 47 times, threw it for 314. He ran it for 64 yards, and there were a couple monumental runs and conversions that he had. I mean, he's had plays in the last couple of weeks against Atlanta and the Jets. I don't know how many people that are listening to this maybe just, like, let's admit it, we all have lives, stuff's going on, my job is to do this, but if you haven't watched a Josh Allen game from start to finish, like the full experience of physically what he is capable of doing, then you're depriving yourself of one of the great joys in the NFL right now. There, there are throws that are incomplete. Like one of my all-time favorite athletes was the Vince Carter phase in the beginning where I wanted to see his missed dunks. And I know I've said that a million times, but it just it puts into perspective like what guys are capable of. Allen has some moments that you're just I can't you know. And again, if it's cold, I think the biggest disservice that Buffalo did to themselves when they lost the first matchup, where New England only threw it three times, was they never really. I just feel like they didn't give Allen as much of a chance to try to throw the football downfield. Because um, I thought he kind of loosened up once they were sort of pressured in to opening things up. Um, and then, you know, a late tip pass and all that kind of stuff. So I like Buffalo in this game, even though on the pick side of it, I just said fade me on this one. Um, Mac Jones has probably had his worst stretch of the season. You take out the Jacksonville game where they put up 50, um, including that, though, five picks in the last four weeks, only eight the first 13. A lot of man coverage the second matchup here. And, you know, J.C. Jackson, who's a good corner for New England, Diggs has kind of torched him. Um, and he's got him for three touchdowns, 233. And by the way, here's another note. Since 2010, rookie QBs are 0-6 and six in their first playoff game, 2-4 and four against the spread. So the Pats line on my FanDuel pick doesn't make any sense, and that was just me going, hey, here are all the reasons I like the Bills in this game. So I'm just picking the Bills, but for the FanDuel thing, I said, let's just go New England plus a four. Vegas at Cincinnati. Cincinnati's actually favored in this one, as you know, five and a half. How about some Burrow stats? He's completed over 70% of his passes, but he's done it throwing at 8.9 yards per attempt, number one in both. The youngest quarterback to ever do it in the history of the NFL. But he's been sacked 51 times. And the previous 54 quarterbacks that have been sacked 50 times in a season, zero have made the Super Bowl. But that's not what we're picking. We're not picking to win the Super Bowl. We're picking them to beat Vegas. Uh, I think Cincinnati gets it done at home. Offensively, though, there's some weird stuff here where you can look at some metrics and say both offenses um, are a little weird statistically. DVOA stuff, Cincy and Vegas are pretty close on the season, but on the weighted stuff, clearly Cincy has moved and separated themselves a little bit. Points per game, Cincinnati's about five points better. Vegas is actually better with the yards, so I think that's kind of where some of the mix-up stuff happens. They met on November 21st. Cincinnati won that one 32-13, and it was only a plus one in the Raiders on the turnover. They had two, Cincinnati had one, but the Raiders did have a couple late turnovers there that opened that one up and made it look worse. But here's the crazy thing about Burrow. 
Because as I've said, you know, in the last five plus years, when I used to bank on completion percentage to really give me an idea of who an NFL quarterback was, now I don't really pay that much attention to it because there's just so many throws in there that are easier throws. It's just different. Uh, when you completed 60% back in the day, that was like a great mark to get past. If you're not over 60 now, something's wrong with you. But the crazy thing about Burrow is he has that completion percentage that we mentioned with the yards per attempt. And that's the exact same thing that he did at LSU. In 2019, Burrow completed 76.3% of his passes, which at the time I believe was the all-time record. I think he broke Colt McCoy's, which seems impossible that anybody could do that to Colt. Um, but it was almost 11 yards per attempt, 10.8. So the crazy thing is Burrow's actually doing the same stuff that he did at college that was re record-setting, I think until maybe Mac Jones passed him in a couple things um, that he's now doing with Cincinnati. So Cincinnati's the pick against a Vegas team that feels better with Carr. Uh, but offensively, there's still a lot of weird things, and it would just really probably come down to the ends trying to get pressure on Burrow, who not only gets sacked a lot, but I think tries to keep plays going longer, where, where I think there's over the course of the game, there's always a few that are on Burrow himself. Philadelphia at Tampa. Tampa, huge favorite in this one, and I'm going to tell you why. It's because Philly hasn't beaten anybody good. They just haven't. The Philly story is nice in that Sirianni and everybody figured out who they weren't after a month of trying to throw the football all over the field, which didn't really make any sense. They shifted things. You know, I don't know the exact date um, where they became really run heavy. And actually, Tampa, who statistically has held up really well against the run over the last couple of years, they've been leaking a bit there now. Um, so that's something to pay attention to. Weapons-wise, you go, okay, how healthy are all these guys? And now with no Antonio Brown, who, by the way, all of you, that had an open mind about Antonio Brown. I don't know what the number is. I don't know the percentage. You feel like that mind is a little less open now as we get more info. The guy went to the Bucks and asked for his bonuses to be paid up front that he hadn't gotten yet. So there's, there's rumblings that he kind of knew he was going to bounce no matter what. Um, I just think, I don't know. A lot of this stuff is very predictable. It's like, well, we the Arians may have to. We may have to see what Arians has to say. You know what Arians really wants to say? This guy was a pain in the ass. He didn't get his bonuses because he was suspended because he had a fake Vax card and the team still kept him on the team because Brady wanted to keep him. Brady wanted to keep him. And then Antonio Brown goes on a podcast where we should all aspire to be a little tougher questioning than Purple Vest guy. Um, but it's just, as we get more info, I just wonder the people that were like, wait a minute, this may not be all on AB. I mean, like, is it really? Okay. All right. So Philadelphia, here are their wins to go nine and eight. Um, and I'm just going to go over the last, whatever, and I can, I can pull it up again here if you want to, to make sure we don't leave anything out. All right. This is, this is my concern with Philadelphia. Their wins, Washington, the Giants, Washington, the Jets, the Saints, um, the Broncos and the Lions. And then before that, it was the Panthers. And when they beat the Saints, they beat Trevor Simeon. They're 0-6 against the playoff teams. So if you look at every team, every playoff team against other playoff teams, the Eagles haven't beaten any of them. They're 0-6. So I like the story. I like the Hurts turnaround. I like the coaching part of this where Sirianni just got dumped on because he was a little uncomfortable in a Zoom intro press conference. But... um. I just I can't I can't buy into a team where I go, you know, there's a little Miami in there where Miami starts off one and seven and then they have that winning streak and everybody's like, this is amazing. And you're like, is it? I think it's okay sometimes to point out every now and then and be like, yeah, you kind of you kind of snuck in there a little. Uh and that's what I think Philadelphia did. It's kind of like that that split college football conference where one division, you're like, wait, that team 
won the division? Well, how did they play? Well, they they didn't have to play anybody good on the other side, and then the back end of their thing was terrible, and then they got the good teams at home. Boom, 10-2. And you're like, okay. Next game, 49ers at Dallas. Dallas is favored by three. I was going to do one of those generic who has the most pressure on them. Which rank the quarterbacks and who has the most pressure? And I started thinking about Dallas and I went, you know who doesn't have any pressure? It's Dallas. Think of it this way. Everybody thinks Mike McCarthy already stinks. Dak got paid. Zeke got paid in the only situation he would have been paid. The roster's pretty good. The defensive players are young. They just got there. And all the public money, you want to talk about the Bills being the public favorite? This isn't even close. The Niners are getting 80% of the public money. 80%. That's a big number. So nobody thinks Dallas is even going to cover. And you're basically picking San Francisco because you feel good about that Rams win in week 18. So I'm going to pick Dallas at home in this because everybody Dallas is 10 and 3 against the spreads best in the NFL this season Garoppolo who is lighting up the completion percentage the deal is still turning the football over a little bit um San Francisco will get their left tackle back Trent Williams for this one I really think that the public response to how San Francisco closed the season has kind of changed them into this darling where I think Garoppolo very clearly is going to be somebody who you know capable for a nice game here or there, and 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 then we'll remind you why the Niners moved up to go ahead and take Trey Lance. So I'm taking Dallas at home. Arizona at LA. Rams minus four. Split their games. Both teams winning on the road. Uh, the second one, Kyler Murray actually threw for 383, but no touchdowns and zero picks. Tough to win. Uh, Stafford's, it was Stafford's last game that went against Arizona, and they were the better team in this game. Um, Stafford's last game without a pick. He's had eight in the last four. The Rams actually, though, have gone three and one, and they've won five of their last six. The only loss being that Niners game that I just got done talking about. But Arizona's five and two against current playoff teams. The Rams, two and five. I'm going to take Arizona to win this one outright in LA, which I know you're not surprised about. Okay, guys, draft. I already knew when I did one of the picks, it was the dumbest pick ever, and it turned out to be that way. Um, but let's let's recap what we have, Saruti. I don't even remember who had the first pick. This is back on November 12th, correct? Yeah, this was uh, basically right before. It was, it was week nine, right before week 10 on a Friday. And Kyle had the first pick. Uh, let me just go through the order. I can do it really quickly, I guess. Kyle had the Bucks. He picked them first. I had second pick, took the Rams. You had third pick, took the Cardinals. And then we did the little snake draft action. So you had another pick. You took the Bills. I took the Packers. Kyle took the Cowboys. Kyle took the Titans. Uh, I took the Ravens. Sick. That was when they actually kind of looked good. Um, you took the Chargers. Then, then I mean, steal the draft in the fourth round. First pick, you take the Chiefs, which is stupid because all of us should have picked them probably in the first round. Um, but I think with their record is probably around 500 at that point. And they were still kind of in more panic mode. Yeah, um, I was. I'm not. I think we all know that I was. I was the furthest from anti-Chiefs guy. I don't know why I would have picked them. I guess I took the Chargers ahead of them. That's what I wonder if I did that just to prove a point later on that they'd be in the fourth round. But anyway, keep moving. I think they were losing yeah, like crazy. I think that was the problem at that time. Yeah, it was it was it looked like a mess, but I mean, here we are. You know, they're the yeah. two seed and favorite to make the Super Bowl against Shocker Shocker. Uh I took the Browns sick pick from me. 
Uh, Kyle took the Pats. What's up? Then Kyle took the Raiders. Look at you getting a point for sneaking the Raiders mm-hmm. in the playoffs. Uh, I grabbed the Bengals, which is a, a nice little savvy pick in the nice. last round. And you closed it out, Ryan, with your Seattle Seahawks. Right. But I do remember specifically, I was like, I do not want to pick Pittsburgh because I'm so sick yep. of watching the Roethlisberger offense in this thing. And I go, this is stupid. I'll take Seattle. And it was stupid then and it's even dumber now. Although I'll tell you right now, it's a good thing the season's over because Seattle's getting hot at the right time. Um, wait a minute. Real quick then. So the Bucks went one. So mm-hmm. Ruby, who did you take with your first pick? The Rams. That was, I think, that was like almost, I think they, they probably had just, trade. Yeah. Uh, was that around the Vaughn time? I don't know. But yeah, I, I thought I, and I thought I, I thought they should have been one. I was pumped. Kyle took the Bucks. So I'm like, shit, I get the Rams. I think they're the favorite. And I would say that is not accurate now. The Vaughn Miller trade got you that excited. I do love Vaughn. Big Vaughn guy. Yeah, me too. Big Vaughn guys. All right. So I'm trying to double check because now I want to find out if we did this November 21st, what did they do? It got you so excited. Wait, they, they went through like a losing streak, though, right in the middle of all this stuff. That's weird. You picked the, the Rams. Ram- yeah, they, you picked the Rams at like a midpoint when they were struggling. If this is November 21st, if I'm to believe. No, no, November 12th, November 12th, so earlier. So that it was, it was probably right after I picked them when they hit the downturn. Sick. Um, yeah, they so lost we- to the ti- they lost to the Titans, so it was like their first loss of a of a bad. They had a bad November. They had a terrible November, and you know Stafford is still struggling here, uh, but they've actually won some of these games, which you know is, he's had. Here's the part with Stafford: if you don't like him, then you go, oh, here we go. This guy sucks again. Could never get Detroit to the playoffs. Um, but then you're leaving out like some of the stuff that he's doing at the end, and then there's me who I've heard that he's like really hurt, and. Then it's like, okay, but if you think he's really hurt and that's excusing the shitty play, then why are you giving him credit for the so we can all just go in circles and I'm not sure who the hell's right. All right. So I'll just I'll just leave it at that. I I think he's better than Goff is my statement that I'm comfortable with. I, so, I would agree. So who has the best group then? You have Rams, Green Bay, and and Cincy. And, that's really good, but you have two AFC North teams that aren't in the playoffs. I made a huge mistake picking three AFC North teams, and one of them wasn't the Steelers. By the way, we didn't the, not, the two teams that made it that we didn't pick were the Steelers, and nobody picked the Niners either. So, uh, I guess did anyone there. pick Philadelphia? Nobody picked Philadelphia either. There you go. So three yeah. teams. They don't even play. count as the team that got in that didn't get picked. <laughs> wow. So my <laughs> open work, Kyle. Kyle yeah. Convinced. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> So Kyle's got I got everybody, dude. He's got the number one seed in the AFC. No misses. He's got he's got every playoff team. He's got five. So how are we doing this, by the way, too? Are we doing a point for making the playoffs, and then are we doing a point for every additional round that you win? All right. I thought it's super simple. Three quarters of a point, day wins. Oh boy. First weekend. No, kidding. I think it's um <laughs> said it really serious. <laughs> Let's it's like all right let's go i'll get, a, I'll get the spreadsheet right, out you should be able to follow no. this unless you're an idiot right. <laughs> 0.75 right. times how familiar are you with german calculus <laughs> so i i think the best bet would be you know what i kind of want to do is escalating scales here so just add a point like it's a point for the first week and then it's two points and well, then point we just, for the point for the playoffs two points for wild card three points for divisional Four yeah, points I for like, championship. Yeah, 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 yeah. There needs to be some reward for getting the playoff yeah. picks right. Because Kyle, Kyle got all of them right. Um, I have I, Arizona, Buffalo, Kansas City. I actually like my group a lot here, even though I have two misses. So is the second rounders? So the the first round buys already get two points. 
Yeah, oh, that's right. It would make sense. It would make sense. Like, there's not a game for them to win, so they already get the second point. All right, so Kyle and I have an extra point. There you go. That's fine. And road wins are plus 10 in the first round. (laughs) All right. We'll we'll map it out maybe a little bit more concisely. Um, But I I think we have the general. Because I don't like... I don't like it's just a point for every team, a point for every win. Like I want, I want the scale to grow the longer you're keeping your teams alive here too. But at the same time, I don't want it to be like ten points for the Super Bowl, and you could have screwed up everything, and then you win our little deal here. So then, um, where are we at right now? I've got six, and then yeah. I have four. You're four. No, because two of mine missed the playoffs. Right, right, right. And then Ryan has one, two. Three, I only have three, three. Yeah, but you've got the Super Bowl favorite likely in the Chiefs. Um. Well, the AFC. I think Kyle. If I had if I had to give a lean here, Bucks, Cowboys, Titans, Pats, Raiders, I'd probably lean Kyle. Thank God, because he I just, just got, made a mess of the uh, QB stock game. So that's good news. Yeah, he's Bounce got a lot of swings at it. All right, I think the deal is winner. <laughs> winner gets to pick any place the dinner, but it has to be a place where there are gift cards available at at the front of a CVS checkout. Oh, so Chili's. The, yeah, so the three of us go Chili's or or Outback or maybe a little Olive Garden. Mm, you know, you, could, like you could bring food in a frolic room, by the way. Perfect. They don't have a kitchen. They can. Um, you can bring whatever you want. They let you bring your own food. They're like, yeah, we don't have we don't have uh, food to compete with you. So yeah, whatever. Just don't sit at the bar. Sit at the other thing over there. Okay. All right. We're doing that instead. We'll get takeout. We'll go to the frolic room. All right. That is our opening playoff preview up next we're going to talk to luke fickle of cincinnati this episode is brought to you by la quinta by wyndham la quinta by wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip from free high-speed wi-fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles eggs and more book direct at lq.com tonight la quinta tomorrow you shine luke fickle an incredible year at cincinnati the head coach joins us now so if you think back to five years ago, because I was watching an interview you had done recently, you know, you're four and eight in the first year to 11 and two to a 13 and 0 regular season conference champion, first group of five to be in the play. What's this been like? Because I know after the loss to Bama, you said, I don't know that I can really put this in perspective. I need more time. Has enough time passed for you to understand <laughs> what you've done for this program? No, I mean, I think you, that's the thing. You just continue to keep moving on. And, uh, I don't know what some people would say. My wife would tell me that the worst thing I do is never kind of take a pause and try to reflect. And, you know, in some ways people would always say, you got to reflect and enjoy it. And that doesn't excite me. Um, you know, but I do think that reflecting helps you learn. So I got to, I do enough reflection just to try to learn where we've come from and where we need to continue to grow. Um, but the, the intri- intriguing thing is, is just as I reflect upon the growth of the players and the kids and, the things that you're trying to do. And we walked in, we talked about blind faith. And then as we started to have some success, it didn't become as much of the blind faith as it was, hey, you can actually see these things coming to, you know, right in front of our faces. Um, so I, it, for me and that, that's what I take out of it is this that, that really the growth, not of just the program, but the guys, the kids and the leadership um, makes me excited about what we're doing. But also trying to look at that. It's okay now where we've come from, where we are, where we want to go. There's still a a, a big gap there that's uh, going to take a lot of work. 
Yeah, you said something though that I think anybody who you know is driven can understand is that you're almost afraid to appreciate it because if you stop to appreciate it, then you feel like you're you losing the competitive edge, which I'm sure for your profession is like that times a hundred compared to everybody else. I'm sure that's what it is. Um, I know in my mind it is, and you know uh, that there's a God. I know there's got to be a balance at some point in time and in some things, but. Um, you know, if I'm going to enjoy anything, it's still going to be that July 4th week that uh, my family and I go on vacation. That's about the the one guaranteed time where I try to say there's going to be a pause that uh, I can hopefully enjoy <laughs> what it is that we do. Other than that, there's a lot of uh, keep moving forward stuff. What did the Georgia Bowl game uh, do for you going into this year? Well, I... I think it made it gave us as coaches a greater look into what our kids really think because you know our guys believe in a lot of things and, and they are competitive kids and going into that game um, sometimes us as coaches know a little bit more you even go out to warm-ups and you watch and you see the size and you say okay we might have a different perspective where those guys that are in it didn't bat an eye we, we preach this whole thing we don't refer to ourselves as any group of anything or any P anything. We're, we're all the same. We, we, we never use that as an excuse. We never let our kids use that. So we've always kind of preached, hey, we're, there's nothing different. So don't, no excuse if we're playing Alabama or we're playing, you know, our rival in Miami of Ohio. Like it, it's, it's still the same thing. We all, we all have the same objective and the same goals. So don't let that be anything different. You know, as a coach, sometimes you, use that as a crutch and you recognize as you're getting ready to play Georgia oof, and our guys didn't and our guys went out and played that way they didn't bat an eye yes we didn't win and it didn't come you know obviously throughout the, the finals of the, of the game and it's no we're not ever going to use it like a moral victory but it really showed me that our guys do believe in what it is that we've said they they are competitive they recognize and realize and believe that it's not the best team that wins it's the team that plays the best and I think it gave us as a me in particular and a lot of our coaches more confidence in our kids and what they really believe. So going into the year, you know, the, the preseason is ranked, you know, the preseason rankings happened a lot because of like, Hey, is the quarterback back? How do they look in the bowl game? You know? Yep. And as somebody who had to vote for the ESPN stuff, I remember criticizing everybody doing it until I had to do it. And I went, Oh wait, like you start to run out of teams and then you start to default like, Oh, I kind of like that QB. So as much as everybody always complains about it, I'm like, feel free to come up with a new concept of doing it. I'm all ears. But you know, a lot of the default stuff happens. So Ritter comes back. We know the team's talented. We know the secondary and all this different stuff. You get forward to transfer. Um, so now there's expectations, which is a little different for a group. How did you, the staff, and and the leaders on this team, <laughs> going undefeated, I don't care, it's just hard to do. How do you keep them grounded? How do you keep them motivated every single week pursuing something that hadn't been done before? Well, that was our biggest thing going into the year is, is we had never, we had always kind of played that underdog role and a chip on your shoulder and we're building and and even the year before going into the year, you know, we weren't the returning champs. We lost in the championship game. So this was definitely a different approach to what it is we're doing. I've obviously been at a place in Columbus at Ohio State that was used to that. So in my mind, okay, I've been through this. I know the difficulties. I under I recognize, you know, it's harder to handle the praise and some of those things than it is the criticism, at least for me. And, and our team, I think, in general. So that was where kind of going into the whole year I was. And 
we kind of, you know, we stole a motto of, of high, high tides rise all ships. And it was the idea that, hey, we've got these really high end guys that understand where we've been, you know, the four and eight season that should have been maybe one and 11. Um, but they understand where we've been and how hard and the things we've had to do to get where we were. So those guys in general, I didn't worry about. They weren't going to make a slip up. They weren't going to take things for granted. The other seven, 60% of our team is what I worried about. So we really tried to empower say, hey, these are the guys, the high tide. Like if you don't live up to their standards, if you don't do what it is that they do, if you let your minds drift, these things can kill you. And uh, really those guys did a phenomenal job. I like to say we all did, but the reality is those, those seniors, those older guys, those guys that went through that four and eight season really did the unbelievable job of leading and taking care of that locker room. So nobody got complacent um, throughout the entire year. When NFL teams call about Ritter, what do you tell them? I tell them that there's nothing that the guy can't do. His, he's still only scratching the surface. Um, he is the best leader that I've ever been around. Uh, and he's in four years of starting, he's found four different ways to win football games, meaning he had to win in a certain way as a freshman. He had to win a different way as a sophomore. He had to win a different way as a junior. He won a different way as a senior. Whatever he has to do to win at the next level, he will do. He's proved that um, to me in, in every different way. And I can't say enough great things. Like It's like when someone asks you about your kids, unfortunately. I'm like, I, I'm sorry, but this is going to sound bad. But um, there's nothing that he can't do. So then they call your assistants after? <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I hear these guys, you know, as you start to list, not that I listen, but, hey, we don't ask head coaches about, about the guys in the draft because all they do is praise them. Um, you know, they don't tell us the truth or something. We got to ask those guys behind the scenes. And, and, uh, so I try to tell our guys, look, you, you guys are allowed to say anything about the kids. You can say positive things. Don't tell them anything negative. I will be the one to be as honest as I possibly can. Okay. And tell them that there's something to be said that I want to be the one to say it, but they don't obviously believe the me and they don't believe the head coaches, I guess. It's an impossible spot though, because the second you say something negative about a higher profile guy, then people are going to use it against your recruiting. And then it's going to get back to that. You know, I remember, you know, I, I, maybe I shouldn't bring up other coaches with you because I know you're not going to start criticizing other guys, but I, I just know, like, I just have been around long enough where I'll hear from somebody be like, hey, someone so trashed me. And that's something a kid will never, ever forget. There's no doubt. I, Even I got, if it's I honest. A, I know. I know. I got one of those back this year from a from someone who came back and his dad talked to me. said, well, I heard that there were some negative things coming out of your guys' camp about about him. And it's like, so that's why I went to coach. You do guys do not have to say anything. You only say positive things about the kids. I got that from Vrabel. He was, you know, obviously NFL. It's like you don't have to tell them guys anything. Their job is to find out themselves. Their job is to watch. Their job is to dig. Don't put yourself in a position you don't have to tell them anything. Now, then he's gonna be the next one to call me and ask me. But uh, yeah, right. <laughs> you can tell me. <laughs> but uh, and it's true because you love them to death. You know, and you surely don't want that stuff coming back on your program or even on your kids. Yeah, no, I love that you guys. I was going to ask you about Vrabel. Um, you were on that that team together. I mean, hell, you're on the Rose Bowl team, which was your last year. Um, and then, you know, on top of it, he's he's on your staff in 2011, which is kind of an odd dynamic because you're close. <laughs> and then, you know, Urban comes in. So I want to get to some of that stuff. But you are really close with Rabel. I don't think I quite understood until we started talking before this that that's still, I guess, one of your best friends, right? Yeah, I mean, both incredibly busy. So 
the time spent is not nearly as much anymore, but uh, there's no doubt, you know, you, you've been in four years of college roommates. Uh, there's a lot of things that don't ever go away. And, uh, you know, it'd be in the same profession. It's you know, try to rely upon each other. If, it, if you, if you need something, you, you know, somebody's in a very similar situation. Did you ever talk about coaching? Were you guys roommates in college thinking like, Hey, if I ever did it, I was oh. going to do it this way. Like, how did you guys discuss it? He always wanted to be a coach. And the day he walked in, he said, I'm going to be a coach someday when I'm done. And I'm like, you're an idiot. I'm not being a coach. I'm going to med school. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not doing what these idiots do. I mean, these guys spend their whole life doing this stuff of 18 to 22 hours. And then they, you know, who knows? And uh, so I never had any ideas of doing it. He was always going to do it. I got into it. And then obviously him playing 14 years. I just remember after he signed like the second, third and fourth contract, I'd always call him and be like, hey, it uh, looks like that coaching thing's out of the, out the window now, huh? He'd always be like, no, hell with you. I, I'm going to coach someday. And, uh, you know, so two guys going in some ways in different paths end up doing a lot of the same things. Um, but you never know. So you're on Ohio State staff after a couple other stops and then Trestle's out. So 2011 is your season. What did you learn in that one season that, that was kind of like, okay, now that I've done this for a year, <laughs> I, I had a plan. I had an idea of what this was. And now that I know, what were some of those things you were like, I had, okay, I had no idea. I mean, there's a, I mean, you, you, we could have hours and hours of podcasts about the things, those, the notes I took and the mistakes I made. Um, the unique thing about it, I mean, I, the unique thing about it is after it, I learned I didn't want to be a head coach. So I was perfectly good with going back to being a defensive coordinator, being a linebacker coach. Being, I mean, just, the things that were taken away doing that meeting, some of the connections with the players, the time spent with the guys, those individual meetings, you know, a smaller group of guys that those relationships that to me were, I loved about coaching. Um, and it was a unique year, but was completely taken away. You're pulled in so many different directions. Uh, you lose that real intimate connection with a smaller group of guys. Um, it was very difficult. And, and I did not enjoy maybe one bit of the nine months or whatever it was um, of that situation. So for the most part, I said, look, I'm, I'm good. Everybody has this idea that I want to be a head coach. I want to be a head coach. And then that opportunity I, after that, I'm like, I don't want to be a head coach. I'm good. This, this is what I enjoy to do. This is much more enjoyable to me. And uh, so I went about my business and it was, it was probably what three and a half, four years. And all of a sudden that passion switched again. And, I wanted to be a head coach. Now I could reflect upon all those mistakes that I made in that eight, nine months um, as I moved forward. Because it wasn't, it wasn't really like you're trying to build something. You know, in that situation, it was you're trying to manage something. If you can manage this, maybe you have an opportunity. That's not what building a program or coaching is really about. And uh, so I learned more than anything, if you try to manage things, I think it's going to fail. If you try to be somebody you're not, it's going to fail. You've got to look at how you want to go forward and grow things, and you got to be yourself. Yeah, and for anybody that maybe you know isn't as locked in, um, if you go back ten years ago, you take over as Trestles out. You know, there's rumors that maybe Urban's coming in, and it was a really tough year. Like you've described it really well, that it wasn't like, hey, I got the job, let's start figuring this out. One three year, five year plan. It was like you're a Buckeye lifer hang out for a bit, go from DC to, co you know, the record wasn't great, but I don't even know, 
Like, I wonder, do you look at that year and did did it piss you off more removed from it being like, wait, people actually think I can't do this? And then it sounds like it's almost the opposite where you go, I'm all set with that. Like, I, I'm good. I, I don't want to do any of that because it wasn't a real coaching job. It was like a steward of the program is what it felt like. No, it was. And I remember the very first time they came to me and said, OK, you're going to ask you to do this. You can hire a guy for your position, but you're just going to hire him for like six or seven months. So find an older, retired guy maybe that you could fill your spot. And I'm like, I'm looking at him like, do you want us to try to be successful? Or I mean, like, no, we're going to hire a guy. We're going to give him a contract because otherwise to our kids, it would be an example of like, oh, they're just trying to manage through the situation. So we've got to try to attack the situation and do the best thing we can. And so you got to let me go, at least go hire somebody with a contract. Right. And um, who would want the job? Hey, we're canning you after a year. So here's a, I mean, here's it, a, here's a zip up. And so, you know, I, Hey, let's remove the, the interim tag and let's just call you, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do, but why put things that are going to bring a negative connotation to what it is we're trying to do. Um, so it was, like you said, very, very difficult in a lot of different ways in a lot of situations. And, uh, it's not really coaching when you're just trying to manage through things. Um, but nonetheless, you, you, I learned, uh, I think everybody learned a, a lot about it and I learned a lot about myself. You know, and you learn a lot about the people that you can really kind of count on and trust. And uh, happened to be one of those was my college roommate in Brable. And, and uh, you know, so that was a unique kind of start for, for a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. Is there anything else from that time that you go, you know, because you, you hinted at it here a little bit of like being yourself and, and making like, again, you were being asked to do a bunch of things, and being pulled in a bunch of different directions where Saturday was just part of the job, uh, which is not the way to do the job. Was there something more specific when you sat and talked with your staff? You know, you're taking over a team that isn't doing well since now. You turn around immediately. But were there a couple things, like a couple ideas that you go, okay, this time around, this is specifically how I would do this differently? Well, yeah. I mean, and like I said, it's about being yourself. Like, try to evaluate, like, okay, everybody's got different ideas of leadership. Leaders, in my opinion, just make others around them better. I mean, you could have 95 million different definitions of leadership. Um, but there are you know, things you got to be able to do. I think you, in order to be a leader, you got to be consistent. In order to be a leader, you got, you've got to be able to motivate. In order to be a leader, um, you've got to be able to get people to buy in. And if you're not authentic, you're not yourself, whoever that is, it's really hard to follow, you know? And I know specifically, I made you know about a month long decision on what I needed to do that at that time was, you know, and I made a decision that I needed to be as much like Coach Trestle as I possibly could. Um, because I thought that's what the players could handle. And I thought that's what the coaches around me could handle in order for us to have a chance to be successful. And so I went around about trying to do as many things as I possibly could, like Coach Trestle would do. And uh, I couldn't be consistent. I really couldn't lead because my, you know, couldn't be authentic in what I was doing. And I really, in the long run, couldn't get people to truly follow me when the situations were tough. And, uh, it was probably about halfway through the season that I recognized that not that I was, you know, miserable, but I was, you know, not able to even pour out, you know, who I was and what I really wanted to do. And, um, you know, but at that point in time, it's like, can you change? I mean, you're halfway through trying to manage da da da. So a lot of different things, like, like I said, intentional decisions that I recognized and realized were really bad ones. And, and, uh, but helped me in the long run to kind of learn who I, who I am as a person as well and as a coach and as a leader.
All right, I'll ask this. Have you watched the Bama tape yet? Uh, four times. <laughs> What's that been like? No, nah, it's uh, it's difficult. But you know, when I when there's when you have when I have wins, sometimes like if that would have been a well, obviously if that would have been a win, we'd have moved on. But um, even like our championship game, I don't know that I've watched the championship game in full. To be honest, I've watched parts of it and pulled the clips and the things because sometimes when you win. I don't want to watch as close maybe right away or, or for sure right away, like on a plane ride home. I'm not going to watch because I'm going to nitpick and not even be able to enjoy six hours of a win. When I lose, I can't get that thing in my hand fast enough so that at least my mind hopefully can see and have a chance to recognize some things to then be able to relax because now I can start to correct things in my mind. So I don't, I know I'm messed up and I know that might be a backwards way, but, uh, it was as fast as I could get to, to to kind of review it three, four times. Honestly, that doesn't surprise me. I, I <laughs> as I asked, had you, I knew I didn't think there was ever a chance that you were going to say we haven't watched it yet. You probably wanted to see it. So, what did you see? I see that we did not play, and I'm, I'm thinking even more defense. I knew we were it was going to be a difficult offense. We were going to have to find a ways to make some plays, and, and in big games like that, if you're going to beat the champs. You have got to make plays, and and that's easier said than done. We understand that, but I mean, like, legitimately, come down with one-on-one catches, make some people miss. Um, what I saw was we weren't far from what we needed to do, both offensively and defensively. We did not play well, and I'm not saying if we'd have played well, we'd have beat them. Um, but that the, the first two series. We didn't defensively didn't play well throughout the game. We didn't tackle well, but we settled in, played really well in the middle of the game. And then, you know, obviously when we gave up the last touchdown after a couple of big plays, um, but deep down inside after watching it three or four times, like we weren't, we weren't far off. It wasn't a mismatch. There was no doubt. Um, you know, we would change some things, but, you know, we matched up really well in the back end. Uh, they did not hurt us or beat us in that in that way and uh you know i i actually have a lot more not i say i didn't have respect for our kids but i really was impressed with at least how they played their aggressive nature and there was no there was no hesitation they weren't like oh my gosh we're playing bama you come at this from you know you were one of the blue bloods right you, you play at ohio state you're on the staff you're there i mean that's you were identified that way and now you were Cincinnati. And so just full transparency, I doubt you ever listen to the podcast or anything, but like for guys that know how much I'm into it, like I do think there's a big gap between the power five and the group of five. However, having said that towards the end of the year, I'm like, look, I don't think the challenge is the same for Cincinnati, but I want them in the playoff. And the fact that you lost the Bama game and then it turns into, oh, see, this is what happens. And I would say, wait a minute, we've seen blue blood programs get smashed in the playoff and nobody says that. So I also remember over the years of having all the coaches come by to ESPN. You know, we'd have Bielema come by when he was at Wisconsin. He's always great to talk to. And I would say, what do you think the gap is between the Big Ten and the SEC? And he'd say, nothing. It's totally manufactured. You guys are full of shit. On and on and on. He goes to Arkansas. And I was like, okay, I'm asking the question again. He'd be like, it's not even close. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I guarantee you. Because of what Landry's seeing it out of. <laughs> right, right. And I get it. You can't. You can't answer the question and say, hey, it's not close. And, and to your 
to your lane of it, you may say, hey, we're Cincinnati. Okay, we're Cincinnati. This is what our talent level is. We don't care about the rest of that stuff. So what's the best no. way to describe the difference there's, between the two? There's a difference. There's a, there is a big difference. And I stood down there on Monday night and watched. There's a difference. Um, but I, I don't think the difference, like you say, I don't use those words, but you say the league. So the Big Ten, as far as the AAC, you know, no, the Big Ten in the top three, which I would say are the Blue Bloods, the others, I, I really truly believe, aren't that much different. There isn't, you know, and I, and, I, and, I, and I wholeheartedly believe that. If I was in the Big 12 here soon, I would say the same thing. If I was in the Big Ten, I'd say the same thing. But there's a difference, okay? And, and, I, and I, I can always say this with even the playoff stuff, like, we didn't want to carry a flag for the group of whatever or the P whatevers, right? I think we carried the flag for the non-blue bloods. Like, had that been Michigan State on a year where they had one loss, they aren't getting in if Ohio State and Clemson and Alabama and Notre Dame are there. I mean, it's just reality. I mean, and, and I think there's more than 90% of college football is that way. So regardless if they're in the AAC or they're not the blue bloods in the in the Big Ten or the SEC, and I, so the gap there, yeah, there's just still maybe a little bit, but you know, it's only because of facilities and things. The gap between the tops, there's a difference. There, there's no doubt there's a difference. Just the natural size of the guys up front um, is where the biggest gap is. Now, I'll be also tell you that the beautiful thing about football in general is it's not the best team that always wins. When you got that many people and that many moving parts, it's the team that plays the best. And if you've got a really good Cincinnati team, that I mean, we're, we've got a chance to have nine guys drafted. I mean, so, but we still don't have maybe some of the guys that we played against or what won the national championship. So there's a difference. Um, but I think in football, I think you have an opportunity when you have a right team that surely can play with a lot of others. And uh, I don't care what anybody says. If they really break the film down, and watch our game against Alabama. Defensively, they were, you know, our offense was was struggling, was going to have a tougher time. But there, there's us defensively. I mean, I know they ran the ball well, but it, it's not. There wasn't a big gap there. I, I can assure you, there wasn't like they were knocking us off the ball. And and the score might be a little bit more lopsided, but it, I'm telling you, it's. Uh, I feel a lot better about about our team and how we played uh, than I did when I walked off the field. And I, I really do mean this because once you started to get things rolling at your own place, where now you've been there five years, and the talent that you have, and the draft picks that are going to go out, and the fact that the transfer portal, I think you now become a very realistic destination for some of the guys who are like, hey, I may have been all these stars, but I'm I'm behind two other guys and I want I want to run the football. <laughs> and so it can become, you know. BYU, depending up, down, year, but you look at the talent they can put in the league. And like Utah, if Utah wasn't in the Pac-12 right now, people would be going, oh, I wonder if there's some kind of gap. And there's absolutely no gap for them whatsoever. So I do believe with your program specifically, um, yeah, I, I'm not going to say you're the same roster as Bama or Georgia or Ohio State, but it's not so much um, about, you know, I would look at the schedule, but from the actual guys playing, you're 22 that are playing there. Yeah, want to compare you to the middle or or the top. It's just not. I no. agree with you on that part. But but the, but the key, too, is like even if you've got a really good team, I mean, if you've got the key parts, like for – I mean, if you've got a quarterback, I mean, we could have a great football team. We know there's a gap. And if we don't have a great quarterback, you're not in the mix. You don't have a chance. 
Oh, but you've got Let's NFL corners, you've got an NFL and receiver. You've got two you've NFL got corners. Right, right. So the positions, you know where your gap is going to be. But if you have a great quarterback and you have some you know, great skill that you can do some things, like you can match up and you have a chance to be the, the better team on that day and play better because I mean, we got 32 seniors. I don't think Alabama has a – I mean, the Blue Blood teams, they're, I mean, they'll be lucky – the seniors are six, gone. Seven, six <laughs> yeah, or seven right. true seniors on their team, and yeah. and you got a team of thirty-two. So they're going to be different, but because of the game of football, you're going to have a greater opportunity to compete if you've got the specific positions too. All right, last two things. What has this done for you then, recruiting wise and transfer wise? Well, it does. Here's what we don't want to we don't want to change, and and I did learn a little bit. So when I was playing at Ohio State. I think we were just a good team. And I don't know if it was his national brand and whatever, whatever, whatever. We played really well going through my career. Uh, and I think we became, you know, a little more national. And I look back at it and our coaches maybe changed how they recruited a little bit as I became a GA. And I really kind of always watched that and say, I think the way they changed in their recruiting because of maybe what they could get because of the good years changed maybe a little bit more the dynamics of their team and their culture and it didn't work the best for them so in my mind for me i don't want to change our 300 mile radius is still the core of our team you know our state of ohio you know our state of since i those are the cores to our team we don't want to change that now is it going to open some more doors within those areas you're darn right and uh you know we still got to be able to close those doors same thing transfer wise it opens a lot of doors. We've been very successful. We've had 12 transfers. I think 10 of them have gone above and beyond what we even thought maybe they would do or could do. And it's because it's been a right situation at the right time with the right group of guys, meaning, you know, there's some dynamics to the, the locker room that are really important. Um, so where we've got some greater opportunities because a guy like Ford has really produced and has come from Alabama or uh, Michael Young, who's come from Notre Dame and really had success for us. We still got a matrix about these are the things that are important if we're going to bring them into our program. And we don't want to change, even though it's going to give us some greater opportunities. Um, so we got to balance and, and weigh that out. Last thing, and I, I don't know, maybe we're close to the same age. Um, the pursuit of the playoff, the pursuit of a championship, and unfortunately, it feels like one team is deemed successful and everybody else is some massive failure. Um, and I hate that. And I, I, I hate that it feels like going to win the Rose Bowl is some letdown. Um, and it is for Ohio State. I understand that. But I, I know that your fan base, because I've heard from them, and I know that, as you mentioned, even after the playoff loss removed from this, you'll understand how successful a year this was for you because yeah. this was a massive, massive success for this program. And it doesn't mean that, oh, your expectations aren't where they should be or this other stuff, but I, it, it'll, be a, it'll be a season removed from it where I, I think people understand how special it was, especially in that community. Yeah, and, and as I hear now, you know, the trip to Dallas, uh, the amount of people that were there, I mean, no, I didn't look around. No, I didn't look in the stadium and recognize, you know, maybe we had more and how unbelievable it was, but at least now back, you're hearing, you're seeing um, some of that. And, and that's great. I, I love it for our kids. I love it for our program. I love it for our community and our city. And uh, obviously what we talked about recruiting, but we want to use that in a way that's going to continue to help us grow our program. So um, I'm not 
completely naive to recognizing that it was a phenomenal year, um, that we've gained a lot of support, even from our community and our city. Um, I have to understand that so that we can find ways to use that to continue to grow our program. Well, congrats on a great season, Luke, and thanks a lot for the time. Brian, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Ozark, the new series premieres January 21st on Netflix. It's uh, broken up into two parts. We'll get to that a little bit. And Chris Mundy, who is the producer and showrunner, joins us today. So what's up, man? How are you? Uh, nothing. Excited. This show's finally coming out. <laughs> yeah. I always kind of sense a little bit of relief after all the hours that are put in. Uh, your really, role... Sometimes you, like we wrote it so long ago. Sometimes it just feels like, oh, yeah, that's that thing we used to do. And then like, so now it makes it feel real again. You know, you work so hard on it and then it just like disappears for a while. What have, you know, for, for the showrunner role where you're not only writing, but you're in charge of the show on top of everything else. Um, but then also being a showrunner for someone else's creation. How is that? How does that work with, with so many different hats that you have to put on? It's kind of always different. Um, you know, uh, it, it, having the various hats is, 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 is only hard in that all the different jobs are happening simultaneously. You know, um, I equate it to parenting. It's like, I don't know if you have kids, but like, to me, like, there's no single part of parenting that's super hard. It's just the fact that all the things are happening at the exact same time, which makes it impossible to not screw up sometimes, you know? Um, and it's the same thing with trying to run a show. It, when, it's, when it's somebody else's, you know, it, it, you either either the person's there all the time, and so you're trying to help kind of guide them and teach them the ropes of just how TV goes, because a lot of times it'll just be that person isn't, just doesn't have experience. So you're... Um, in this case, Bill wrote it. Bill lives in St. Louis, um, actually has a feature career. He's got three kids in high school in St. Louis. So he was never going to be sort of in the room. And, and so he kind of came out at the beginning and you kind of like pick his brain in terms of things. And then he was gracious and trusting and that we wouldn't mess it up. And there's a strange thing in all that, that it, it allows us, because I didn't write the pilot, all of us writers and all that can kind of own it together. It's like, no, I'm not telling them like, this is what it is. You know, we're, we're all finding it together. And there's, there's something kind of, um, kind of fun. The more, the more it feels collective, the better it is. Bateman is great for a bunch of different reasons. Um, yeah. but there's just such buy-in with him, right? There's buy-in from the audience where it's like, if he's in front of us and he's telling us something, then it's, there isn't some massive stretch or this, this idea of this disbelief that you could have, you have to get past. What's it like writing for somebody where you just feel like, Hey, if he's on saying it, then, then the audience just has some trust with him that doesn't happen for everybody. No, totally. And, and I, I said this before, but it's really true. Like, if the, if the show, if Jason wasn't in the lead in this role, by the time just starting with someone who's you know for ten years has been laundering money for a drug cartel, 
most people would be like, oh my God, I hate that guy. Forget it. Like what, you know, but Jason is so likable that we like, we banked all of those years of people liking him and trusting him to even get people to kind of start with us. You know, we didn't watch it evolve. So that's really good. And you also know with Jason that like, if you write anything, cause we try, like people might not think we're funny. We think we're funny a fair amount. Um, and, uh, but you can, you can write to his, he's got such comedic timing and such a dry sense of humor, both on screen, but also just in real life. Um, and so you can write things and know you don't have to push it because he's going to be so good and so deadpan perfect. You know, it, um, it's such a luxury. It's, you know, he and Laura and Julie, I mean, everybody, honestly, like they, they make you look so good. And the better an actor is, the less words you need to give them, you know? So um, you just learn to trust that. It's, 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 it's really fun. Season three did massive numbers. Um, and anybody, he was a creator. It's like, oh, wow. You know, you can sit here and talk about the art. And then it's like, now everybody's watching this. This is amazing. <laughs> Why do you think it's worked so well? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I mean, hopefully the longer it goes on, the more we get to know ourselves and know what's good about the show. So like, it should get better. You know, you should get deeper. But I, I think there's something, I mean, there's a little bit of luck in, in everything when anything goes well. I think the fact that it's relatable as a family and relatable as a marriage, even though it's insane in terms of like the circumstances they're dealing with, I think that to me is sort of the secret ingredient. Um, we always think of it as a family show. And we think of it as a show about a marriage. So um, that's where our focus is way before it goes to bells and whistles about a drug cartel and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think there's something in, inside that that... Um, it's it's fun. People can see their own lives within it, but thank God it's not in such a stressful situation, you know? Yeah, because I've heard you say before that it's a show about marriage, which is an interesting way to describe it. I, <laughs> I think I would have to get a little more depth if I were telling my buddy to check the show out. Yeah. Um, but why did you why did you frame it in such a simple way? Which I realize you you understand there's more depth to it, but I mean, yeah, it's your um, show. I, I, I think if you think of it that way, it'll always have a heart. You know, the, the thing I, I hate, I hate shows that where like all sorts of graphic stuff happens, but they just happen because the writers wanted them to happen, you know? So it just becomes all incident. And uh, so I think if you're always thinking it through the frame of a relationship or a family, then you've got to justify what's happening, you know, and, and you've got to emotionally justify what hap what's happening and, and walk people through like a real pattern and, and, and not just be like, Oh, this week they're going to do something really like violent and evil. And then next week they're not like, you've got to understand it in, in, in a frame. So to me, it just grounds us. There's, there is a tremendous amount of, of, okay. You know, this is, this is, if I remember, let me rephrase this. I remember when somebody in television gave me the breaking bad pitch and they gave it to me in 60 seconds. Right. And you went, okay. And it was an example that somebody was using about a pitch. You're like, if I was describing a show to you, I'm like, here we go, 60 seconds. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in. This is amazing. And, right. and it's that show's like perfect for it. Ozark is is very similar. But as you mentioned, like the believability with, with Laura or Jason, and yet, hey, they're going to be hooked up with this cartel. And they're going to be trying to build a casino and they're going to get involved in all these different things. There might be a, a harder buy-in without seeing it. But then once you do watch it 
and layering in that Marty got caught up in this because he felt unfulfilled, um, that the marriage was a mess when we first see these people together, that they also have the same parenting issues that everybody else would have. How important do you think it is in those those beginning parts to to plant these seeds that we're going to go on some real rides here that may be hard to believe, but you're going to believe them because we lay the foundation of all of these characters. I think it's huge. I think it's huge. When we, when we started in the writer's room for season one, we did not, I was like, we're not going to put a single story beat on the board for at least two weeks. Like we're just going to sit and talk about who all these people are like in just in depth that it may, may never make it onto the screen. Like the details that we all know, but we'll all know them when we're writing them. Um, and then I think within that, like, you know, you, you build that foundation. Like I've said uh, before, but it's really true. Like we tell a ton of story on the show, clearly. But um, so, so our storytelling pace is fast, but our internal pacing inside a show is kind of, kind of uh, uh, way longer and slower. So, so what it does is, you're able to have like a four minute scene if you want between two people, if it'll justify itself and you get to know them and feel them at the same time, crazy plot stuff is happening over the course of the episode. And I think that weird push and pull um, has, has worked for us. I don't know if it would work every time, but like in, for this show, it, for this show, it, it really has. And, um, and, 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 and I, it, I don't even think it's something that people probably even think about or notice but we do. And, and, and so you get to know the people and you get to care about the people. Like, sure, Ruth is a really fun character because she, you know, you know, she swears like a trucker and she's, you know, super ballsy for you know, a 19 year old girl in the Ozarks. But you also there's like a humanity with her that you get to understand. So it's you'd wear out on her if, if you didn't get to play all the humanity. And then obviously, Julia just brings so much to it that we're all lucky. Right. Julia plays Ruth. Is Ruth who you thought she would be when she started? She's who we want, who we thought she could be and better. <laughs> um, you know, it was really like, we loved that character in the abstract. Um, and it stayed pretty true to what we originally thought uh, in the broad strokes. But um, I think once we started writing it and once we realized just how fantastic Julia was in the role, you could just keep layering and layering and she was, she could just do everything. And, and, and she plays it with such, um, she has swagger and like a certain melancholy at the same time. So, um, you know, you could pull in, in one scene, you could, you could watch both, you know? And, uh, so I think in that way there she's, um, way more three dimensional than I ever could have hoped for. Um, and, and I already had super high hopes, yeah, because that one, you know, you're trying to think. Okay, we we have these these boxes checked, and it's like, okay, but who comes? Who becomes complicit with Marty? Like, who is this? Nice. Because in the beginning, you're like, okay, this is the relationship, and it's, you know, I, I don't want to take anything away from anybody else, but it might be the most important through line of of the first three seasons. Um, oh, definitely. I, we we, we I, talk I about so. we talk about that like the 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 other romance and totally not in, not in any way romantic or sexual, but the other romance we think about is Marty and Ruth, just this sort of platonic, you know, he, he's the, Marty is the first person that ever saw how smart and capable she was. So for him, for, so it's like kind of like a father figure, kind of like a big brother. And, 
And I think there's a real protection and pride that Marty feels even when they're butting heads, you know? And, and with Wendy and Ruth, Wendy just recognizes Ruth and Wendy is the same person just coming from different angles, really. And I think because of that, when they butt heads, that nothing good can happen in a strange, in a, in a strange way, because, you know, um, but with Marty, there's just, there's a deep affection there and you can't, and no matter how mad he is, he, he's never going to get out of that deep affection, you know? I, I'm kind of jumping around here, um, oh, timeline wise, but I feel like, especially with, you know, some more of the prestige television that we've had over the last decade, plus depending on whatever timeline, you know, you believe in those first few seconds i mean it's not even the first few minutes anymore those first few seconds to introduce a story and to have marty being giving financial advice while he watches his wife on video have <laughs> sex with another man you go and at the time you're not 100 sure what's going on right and then he brings out the laptop later on how how 101 is that in writing right now where it's like you better have something scream off the page conflict why am i interested in the first few words yeah, it's really true. I mean, it's a worry, you know, because because things do you do want to build things, you know what I mean? You <laughs> and, and you don't you don't want to like out sensationalize somebody, you know what I mean? But um, but yeah, it's it's it, if you can if you can pull someone in like that in a way that is um, you know, surprising at the same time, not just like surprise for the sake of surprise, like that. It, back. it meant something. I mean, it, it meant was something. important. It looped back right. into something really emotional, you know? In fact, in that first season, there was a moment where Marty and Wendy have sex for the first time, um, you know, and it turns into him replaying that thing that he saw that she doesn't even know he saw. And we saw that, like, we put that on the board for in the writer's room. That was, like, in the way that in a season, someone might say, oh, this is the moment where so-and-so dies. That's a turning point in the season. Like that, that was one of our gigantic turning points in the season. Just that weird, the intimacy that turns completely terrible. So, um, so, so going back and using that and reincorporating it was, you know, it was great. Um, there's, as with every season and, and just looking at the trailer alone, you're like, okay, you know, you're raising the stakes, raising the stakes again. Uh, what was the conversation leading to, do we show a love scene between Darlene and Wyatt? Um, that was, that was, uh, we kind of, we said it in the room, uh, actually, uh, Laura Dealey, one of the writers said it and everyone was kind of like, kind of laughed. And, and I was like, I, that's really, I kind of love that. And then it became like the next day we're like people, it was more like, are we really doing this? I'm like, oh yeah, we're really, like, we're really, like, we're really doing this. Our, our thing with that was both in the writing of it um, and definitely in the filming of it, we're like, do not, we're not playing it as, like, we're playing it absolutely straight. It's like, here are two people that are broken in a certain way and needy in a certain way and film it and write it like they're both 30 or like they're both whatever, you know? And, and so that like, other people can like kind of look sideways at it, but they, they weren't. And I think the key to pulling it off was, um, or if, to the degree we pulled it off anyway, um, was, was <laughs> just making it emotionally true and sincere and then letting everybody else from the outside react however they're going to react. Because I think those of us that are, that are watching and, you know, that's what I, I do really appreciate about the show is that, okay, 
here's the setup and here's what we're doing. And now it's like very believable. I mean, in a weird, I don't know if you've ever played video games. It reminds me like some of the old Grand Theft Auto stuff where it's like Marty's just in the Ozarks and he's like, okay, I'm buying strip club. Now I'm buying a hotel. Now I'm buying this <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was like, that's kind of what it, obviously there's, there's more to it. So I don't want you to take me, but like you just compared our really successful show to a stupid video game, but no, 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 no. it, it's like, okay, now that we're in this setting and now we we're, you know, we, we we figure the whole thing out and then it's like okay what's something we could just do on the side that i don't know if it's going to freak people out like is it necessary well it's not necessary so how do you talk like as you said somebody brought it up hey throw it on the board and then think about it for a little bit but it's not even specific to that scene how often are you thinking about the growth of the show and growth of the characters but also realizing hey we got seven episodes ten episodes like yeah. what can we do that's that's actually let's give them a little dessert through the process i'm thinking about it like all the time like yeah. Like every, it's like, I'll, you know, we'll be in the writer's room. I guess we're all done now, but like we'd be in the writer's room and we'd go home, you know, make dinner, have a hangout with my family while we're all just kind of chilling out. And then at some point, there's always some point where I'm like, I'm sitting there off by myself with like a little, like, it's like, oh, you all of a sudden have time to like all the thoughts that, because the writer's room is, you're always talking about stuff, but it's so much all the time that there's almost no time to like, fully absorb everything so you're just like the, the writers would always joke i would come in with these tiny little post-it notes and this like little scribble like a serial killer like with like okay here are the five things i thought about that we could do and like and they're always little things little or big things like that but it's kind of it's kind of constant it's, it's it's actually a fun part of it you just like you're always kind of living it any things that you thought of and maybe you loved for a day slept on it and went okay we're not doing that or something that maybe was close to being done. It just didn't happen. No, I mean, the closest to that we had is 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 we broke season two with Ben, uh, Wendy's brother, in it for a long time. He was, he was for the first probably five, six weeks of, of the writer's room, which is a pretty long time. He was a huge part of that, se- of that second season. Um, and the decision to just pull it out, because it was, everything was just, it was just too much. It was just clogged. Um, that was a really tough one because we thought it was going to be really good, but we went into season three being like, okay, we know we're going to do, we know we're going to do this and we're going to bring him in. So, um, uh, that's, it's more of an example of, of, of that. And usually it's like, usually it's things like I said, we're like, are we really doing that? Like when Darlene cut the baby out of, you know, Mason's wife, Grace in season one, one of our writers had been off on set and, uh, uh, down where we were filming. So she hadn't been in the room when we we did it. And she came back and we, we just had it up there. We were just like talking. We were like breaking the thing. And I was sitting next to her and she looked at me. And she's like, she's like, we're doing it. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, we're doing it. And, she's, and she just smiled. She's like, wow, great. And I was like, it's usually been us like saying like, okay, yeah, I guess like, let's go for it. I don't think like we've ever been unhappy when we went for something. So what's the hesitation then? If the return seems to be so good, is it just still about this is really gross? It's graphic. It's, it's either too much. If it's gross or graphic. Um, it's even it's um, it's you know it, or it's did we earn it? Is this would this is it believe? Can you believe in our twisted universe that this would happen, or is it just a bunch of writers that want something like cool or you know over the top to happen? You know there was a big season one. No, sorry, season two. Um, there's a scene where Helen waterboards, uh, Ruth and for a while in the room, 
that what uh, the version of that was going to be, they were going to basically kill Marty unless Marty waterboarded Ruth. And Marty was going to be the, be there. And there was a lot of debate about that. And uh, and there were two of the writers in particular really, 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 really disliked it. And so we pulled back on that. You know, Marty's zip-tied in the front with Cade while it's happening. Because um, they just didn't want to physically see that happen. And um, so that's that's one of the times we pulled back on something. And 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 I totally under, understood why and sort of respected respected that if it was that for the, of those of us who kind of own the show, if that was way too far for people, then maybe like we ought to pull back. Do the arguments sometimes become emotional? I imagine. I mean, oh, look, I know, I know the answer is yes, but I mean, emotional, not with each other, but because of the attachment to the characters. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, uh, as we approach the end of the show, even more just cause every, everything has weight. Everything is the last everything, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, it really, it really does. And, and it's, and it's, it's funny. It's like, even like, you know, those of us who've been writing it from the very beginning, people will interpret things we've done slightly differently, even though we've talked about it for hours on end about what it means. And I, I know what it means for me, but, uh, it's really interesting, but you do, you know, at the same time, you're trying to make an interesting show and a, and, and a, and a, and a fun show and, and hopefully a truthful on some level show. So you've got to be brutally real with your characters. You do feel sort of like parental about them. Like you need to like, like if something bad happens to them, you're not taking care of them, even though of course you're doing it, you know? Uh, was there always the design that, that either Darlene or Jacob had to die, you know, was, was it, I mean, that was probably, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of intense different storylines in here, but Darlene and Jacob in this woods, uh, what was the buildup of the discussion of like, how early did you know that that might've been it? Was there ever a debate of how long you can maybe keep them both alive? Or did it ever go the other way? Because I mean, that was, that still to me is probably one of the heaviest parts of the entire series. Yeah, that was, it, cause, cause it was so, um, in one way it was so simple and do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, it was intimate, you know, the, the, the end. I think that, I think that is why it worked really well. Um, that we knew that pretty much immediately in season, at the beginning of season two, that we were going to do that. The interesting thing part part of that is, is the character of Darlene never, when she first came in, wasn't meant to be as big a part as it turned out to be. It was really more, we liked the idea of this being a husband and wife, you know, so that it's kind of a mom and pop heroin store, you know, or operation. Um, But with no real, no real plans to expand Darlene particularly, you know, um, and then Lisa Emery was just so good. And I thought I, we came out of that first season. It was like, it's like, damn, I think, I think Lisa's the scariest thing in the show. And it's not like she had tons and tons of dialogue in, in the, over the course of that first season. It's just that when she did, you just like, you know, you leaned in and, um, and so that became interesting. And we, we, we kind of thought that Jacob would go at the end of the end of season two. And then because Lisa was so good, it was a way to do that and then make it again, like really intimate and sad. Like I felt, I felt obviously terrible for Jacob, but I felt terrible for Darlene as she's doing it. And then I'm thinking like, 
why the hell do I feel sorry for either of these people? They're like terrible, you know, <laughs> heroin dealers, you know? So that's kind of the, hopefully the magic trick of it. Yeah, though, it's a good point on Darlene in that her being so unhinged and so unpredictable, you know, that we see at the end of season one, that now, okay, like there's no part of her doing anything where I would go, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Because you've, well, you've built up all this equity of her being so unhinged that it, now you can kind of get away with it. Right. And she, and she also has a code. Like in a weird way, it's like, you know, when she kills Dale, Dale in season one, it's because he was not polite. You know, and and like her code is strong and true. It's psychotic, but it's like, but you can, but you can track it. You know, so I think that has a lot to do with it too. Like, there's some way, like you actually know she's a good mom to that baby, which makes no sense. You know what I mean? So it's it's interesting to play with those those various sides. I read in an interview. And I don't know if this is, I, I don't believe it's just Justin, but, you know, different shows, I, I understand work different ways. You know, here's the script, you know, don't ad lib. <laughs> the writer's room takes offense. Um, sometimes it's a showrunner that is just like, you know, this is exactly how we're doing it. And then you'll have somebody on set who's actor, actress with enough juice that it's like, hey, let's play it this way. It seems like you have far more flexibility with some of the actors on just how how the line reads in their freedom to tweak things at times. I'm sure you're not saying this about every cast member, but no, I'm just well, researching some of it. It seemed, it seemed kind of interesting how that plays out. Well, you know, we make the show together and we're a group and we all like each other. So like, to me, we get this, we get the outlines to our, you know, the department heads to start working on all the stuff really early. And we get the scripts to the actors really early so that they have a chance to live with them talk to me as much as they possibly want. Cause like we're creating it together. You know what I mean? It's like, we're in one way, you're like this theater troupe and you all know each other. And luckily we all like each other. I know that sounds like one of those things that people just say, but like we truly just all do. So, um, so in that way, I'm talking to people, you know, it's not like all the time, but like I'm talking through the script with them whenever when anyone has questions. So hopefully by the time we're on set, we've already had all those conversations. But but if you get on set and there's something that doesn't feel right in the actor's mouth, then they probably know they I trust that they know well because they're they're playing that person. And and so they'll talk to they'll either if I'm there, we'll talk or if there's a writer there, they'll talk or they'll call me or text me as, as we're filming. And, uh, you know, nine times out of 10, they're right. And then the 10th time out of 10, we'll do do it both ways or, you know do it both ways or I'll be like, Oh no, it kind of needs to be this just because of that. And they'll say like, Oh, that, that makes sense. But to me, um, you know, having the relationship and having the ownership by all of us, like just makes the show better. I have two other things uh, before we finish here. Writing for the children in the show. And I would say in most shows, it feels very cliche. Like the child is a mechanism to get a reaction out of the main characters, right? Unless it's a show about kids. Uh, right. In this case, I think you all all the right everybody in the room deserves so much credit for making both the kids interesting and the Jonah part of it where you nail the sort of you know not intentionally creepy but creepy adolescent right. and then his evolution into you know actually wanting to help I, you know you made you made both the the children valuable to the storyline 
And, oh, thank you. I, I, and I don't think that happens very often. I think it's a really hard thing to pull off because we're just used to kids being cliche and none of us really care. We're like, well, whatever. That's not the main <laughs> right, character right. anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that's really, that's really nice of you to say. I mean, we, it, we, we obviously try and, you know, and it's interesting because you're, you're watching them like, you know, those of us, like us grownups that are writing it, you know, the five or six years we were working on this show, you know, we don't change that much. But you watch, you know, you watch these kids go and Skylar's going from like, you know, you know, 12 to 18 and Sophia's going from, you know, 16 to 21, you know, like um, those are major changes in, ter in terms of like their understanding the world. And so they, and so hopefully having built the, those characters well, those kids, you watch them just get better and step up and it, it, it's, it's fun. And I've, I've got two, I've got two girls. So. Um, you know, you can, you're listening all the time to the way like kids really talk. And I, I think just the decision to like immediately fold the kids into the story, as opposed to the kids, here's a secret the parents are trying to keep from the kids. Cause you do that. And then every scene with them is going to be the same scene. It's just a scene about what they don't know. Um, yeah. you know, and, and so um, I think it was really important to the DNA of the show that they immediately knew. And then it's the slippery slope of by the time they're loading money into that wall season one, like, oh, damn, this is like a whole this is a whole family operation and the dinner table is a different place. OK, last thing. Uh, you wrote the finale to season one. Yeah. And, right. Just so yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I was I was positive, but I want to make sure that everybody was on the same page here. Uh, before you start trashing it, before you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're like episode nine sucked, but great job. Out of 10. <laughs> uh, the kind of bait and switching of the audience, the, the teasing that something could happen and getting us to continue to believe where in this case, it's like, wait, is this really going to happen? It can't happen. It's the end of season one. Like the family has to stay together. It's a TV show. Right. It's, it's a hard thing, you know, cause it's like, all right, let's, let's keep teasing you a little bit and you have to have us kind of thinking, is this actually a possibility, even though the structure of a show, it doesn't entirely make a ton of sense. And you keep pushing. How do you keep figuring out ways of paying that off in a way where it feels like, yeah, we know we're messing with you here, but we're actually, we don't want you to think that. We want you to buy into the fact that these could be some options, but eventually we do have to keep this group together because if the group is separated, I don't know what the show there's is. A, there's no show. Yeah, it's a tricky thing, obviously. I mean, I think... Um, I think the, the the key, if there is one, is 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 being invested enough so that people aren't kind of stepping outside themselves and thinking about, okay, it's a TV show. Like everything you're saying, which I totally agree with, is if you can keep the situation tense enough for the people in it, then you're just living with them rather than sit, stepping outside the situation, being like, oh no, I don't, I, I don't worry it's all going to be okay because it's a, tel it's a television show. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so you've got to like make the people walking around inside the show. You've just got to live in with them a little bit in those moments. And hopefully the tension will, the tension will keep holding, especially in that last episode. It's one, it's that, that I remember Jason, and I, Jason, cause Jason directed that. And uh, we were both so happy. I mean, it, it, that ran at an hour and 20 minutes. It was the same, it was the same, you know, page number, of, you know, that we, that we always written, it just was longer. Um, and, and when we turned it in, they kind of suggested like, well, if you want to pull some time, maybe you could pull this. And we're like, we're pretty happy. Do you mind if we just like 
we'd really love to just keep it exactly as is. And Netflix was really nicely said, like immediately said yes. But I think some of it was like, he did such a good job directing that like he did like, you just felt stuck in those moments. You know what I mean? It's like, and so if you're holding your breath enough, you're not, your brain's not saying like, oh, it's going to be, it has to be okay. You know, um, no, but it's a great decision because it's exactly how it would be. Like if you were facing this thing where you're like, okay, is this it? And am I really breaking off from the family? And then this isn't even really a great plan. You'd have those moments where you would just be at the side of the road going, am I going to do this? Um, I, I, I'm surprised at least in the first season, they'd let you get away with it. That would be an interesting industry question that I don't know the answer to. What is the pushback other than millions and millions of pieces of data that would suggest over a certain amount of time stop making a TV show. Um, but we see <laughs> movies trend longer and longer. What What is it normally on the pushback? And I'm not talking about network stuff where Netflix has, you know, they can make episode as long as they want to make. HBO has a little bit more restriction, all that stuff. Why is there this pushback creatively because of just research? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. It's like, I, I kind of set the the number for us like I didn't want to be over when I mean, we've been over an hour on, on a handful of shows, but just for myself, I was just thinking like, when I look at a Netflix show and you see before it's going to start, it says like 52 minutes or it's like, for some reason, when it goes like into 61, 62, 63, I'm like, okay, wait, do I have the investment time? I don't know why it's stupid. Uh, so for me, I was like, let's, we should always try to keep it. It shouldn't be above 60. That just feels like, oh, Okay. And then of course, like we've broken it a bunch of times, but, um, uh, so some of it was just my own psychology in, in the whole thing. And, and, uh, but I've got to say Netflix was always really good. They never like, you know, if it didn't feel long, you know, if something feels long, you need to cut it. But if something is an hour and 20 minutes and it doesn't feel long, you know, you never kind of like walk to the fridge, then, um, then I feel like it kind of justifies itself. And it, it's weird. Like, you know, some of our best in these last final 14, a um, couple of our best episodes are like 62, 63 minutes, but a couple are like 50, like shorter than we've ever done. And it's really just like, oh yeah, that was, that was the time we needed to tell that story right. So seven episodes, uh, again, the premiere on Netflix, January 21st, and then there's no date for part two of the fourth season, which is another seven episodes, correct? Yep, that's 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 right. But it won't be a super long wait, I don't think. Any idea? Um, I, my my guess is spring summer, but um, oh okay. But uh, but uh, you know, it's that's my guess. But I don't think it, I don't think people are going to have to wait a long time. Okay, we won't use this as the breakout to promotion. Chris Muddy confirms spring yeah, summer exactly. for, for for part two. We won't do that to you. Uh, we're all fans. I appreciate the time, man. Good luck with the premiere. Look oh, thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate being on. I, I, I love it. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Buy Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose Buy. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Buy and discover all of the exotic bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. It's time to ditch your old workout fit. Seriously, just let them go and try Viore clothing instead. Their active wear is unbelievable. Sometimes I wear it and I go, do I look too good? <laughs> I don't want to be at this 
peak level of awesomeness in their joggers every single day, this is going to be hard to maintain, but that's what the joggers do for you. Whether you're sort of business cash, whether you're just around the house, whether you're working out, whether you're getting on a plane and you're going to be in your seat for a long time, the joggers just give you a hug for the entire flight. It's soft. It's comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. Incredible versatility. You can wear it while taking part in different kinds of exercises, running, training, swimming, yoga, and more. Viore yoga class. That just makes sense. The Sunday jogger is the number one go-to. And of course, the core short out now. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Ryan. You want details? Fine. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice, life advice rr at gmail.com. Okay, we have a couple of good ones. I want to start with something that's totally different. We haven't done anything like this before, so I'm very excited about it because at first I was like, this is a dumb one, Kyle. And now that I've read it, I don't think it's dumb. I love it. Uh, it is dumb, though. Okay, around spring 2019, when most of us began remote work, um, spring 2019? I think that's wrong. Yeah. It's been, a, it's been, a, long, it's been a long quarantine, <laughs> guy. I get it. <laughs> Maybe they started remote work 2019. Honestly, that's a very excusable mistake because I'll have times where I'm like, wait a minute, when was that? And I'll go, oh, that's that was then. I'm like, that wasn't that long ago, but it was. I don't know. Okay, so our guy started remote work at some point. I responded to a Microsoft Teams office chat. Oh, okay, so they had a chat going that I had the best pirate joke ever. My coworkers were like, great, let's hear it. I declined, but promised to tell it when we were all back in the office because the joke requires me to read the room. Most jokes do. I like this guy already. As remote work dragged on, they insisted on me telling the joke on a video conference. I again declined. This is, in fact, the best pirate joke ever, and I was not about to sully it over an impersonal medium. <laughs> um, remote work dragged on and on. My coworkers began to think I was just messing with them, that the joke didn't even exist. Gasp. First, there was confused anger and disappointment, but they quickly began to believe the whole joke was me egging them on about some epic joke that didn't actually exist. And while I stuck to my guns, talking it up, and yes, I've talked it up to the nines. Whoa, okay. <laughs> Look at our guy here. Uh, the joke is impervious to expectations. They seem to fall in love with this perceived years-long years elaborate ruse, or maybe a year and a half. Now that we'll all likely be back in the office after Omicron has passed, oh, really? making that call and hopefully without masks by 2023 do i tell the joke some seem to respect me more for sticking with this perceived ruse but after all we've been through they also really deserve a damn good joke um and he says finally my supervisor sometimes listens to your podcast if you read this email he will take it as furthering the ruse by seeking your advice on a fictitious joke uh, or will he finally believe the joke is real <laughs> uh <laughs> all right i don't the reason I think this is so funny is I'm thinking about my one one friend. I have more than one, but the the one friend that I have in our group who this would be what he would do forever. He would just do it forever, even if there was a joke. And clearly the emailer is telling us that there is, in fact, a pirate joke. Um, but I think the funnier thing is for you to just ride this out forever. Never tell the joke because now the joke, no matter what it is, it still could be a really funny pirate joke. 
but it can't meet expectations. I mean, you're telling us that this is impervious to expectations, which I still think is sort of impossible for a joke. Uh, everything in life is expectations, really, if you break it down that way, how you feel about a movie, how you feel about other people, your whole concept of going into a weekend, depending on your expectations is likely how you're going to grade your enjoyment of it. So I don't know how the office, like, even if this is a banger of all pirate jokes, I don't know that it can live up. And I think it's way funnier as I think of this friend who would just be like, the joke is for you to be back in the office and then go tell the pirate joke. And your line should just be something like, it just doesn't feel right. Just doesn't feel right. Or, you know, now's not the time for pirate jokes. And then that's your joke. And it plays forever because people, another thing about us is that, you know, when you're, we're told about something that we're going to, you know, find out about, most of us care. Most of us be like, I don't even care if it's terrible. I need to know. Like, I need to complete this, this series here. Uh, so I, I like your mindset on all this. I'm sure your supervisor's thrilled about you talking about the nines in the office. Um, so take it easy on supervisors if you do listen to this podcast. But I think the move here is to never tell the joke. And the joke itself is you just having funny lines that are endless now. They're endless whenever you're asked about the pirate joke. I think it's, I, I like that route. I think both routes that are, are good here. I, I wonder if you could like gift the joke to individual people like on for Christmas or something. Be like, I got you this joke for Christmas, but you can't tell anyone. Like maybe, maybe there's like a way to, to like not let everyone in on it, but like maybe get it off your chest a little bit. Um, I mean, like a wedding gift would be just everyone would hate you for that. But I'm just thinking of like where someone's expecting it's a bad wedding gift. It yeah, is it's a bad wedding gift. It yeah. would be hilarious, though, like where somebody's expecting something from you. And what you bring to the table is that you get to listen. You get to hear this uh, and get some ownership of the greatest pirate joke ever. But you can't give it to just anyone. So I think that could be funny, too. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't do this over over Zoom. It sounds like you've already committed to the the bit of the bit. So. I mean, unless it's a hard 10 joke. Um, and I wish there was a way like I wish that and maybe we could like do a follow up on this and he could send us the joke and we could sort of like pilot test him for it. And like we could tell him whether or not it's actually worth telling, because if it's not a 10, then everyone's going to get let down. I and mean, even if it's a 10, it still might be a letdown. So I think, Ron, you're 100 percent right. I think you just got to basically play it like, eh, not the right time. No, not today. Maybe tomorrow. Even I'm like, people. tell the joke, dude. I want to even just knowing about it for a little bit of time. Like, well, what's the joke? Here's the thing. Is it his joke too? Did he make the joke up? No is it way. like a known joke? I don't think so, he's a joke writer. My guess is, <laughs> I mean, he's pretty funny in the email and he, he's clearly pretty smart with the way he kind of set it up. Because at first I'm going, what is this? Like, I'm not reading this one. And then I got through it and I was amused. But I think I'm extra amused personally because I'm thinking about this one guy, Mark, and how great he would be in delivering the constant, like, you know what? I'd, I'd love to tell it today, but I just, today, it just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel like the right day for a pirate joke. And he would be so funny in that delivery. And that's why I just kind of keep laughing to myself. And maybe I'm on an island on this one. I just, I still feel like, so I did Google a bunch of pirate jokes because I was trying to figure out. Me too. Is there, <laughs> is there one that hits so hard? <laughs> you know, and one of the first ones I found out, how do pirates know they are pirates? They think, therefore they are. Yeah, there's a lot of R jokes. Yeah, a lot here. of R jokes. A lot yeah, of, yeah. Lot of, lot of where, do, where do pirates keep their valuables in a jar? You know, a lot, a lot of R's. I'm hoping it's like a story joke, like the Funkhauser joke about the uh, <laughs> that he tells on the set of, of Larry's show. Like, I'm hoping it's got like a story and a setup. And then like, it's like, it's super long and winding and it's not good. And then the end is so shocking that you're like, oh my God. Like, that's why I'm hoping it's one of those jokes, like a three paragraph joke. 
I don't think it could be a one line joke. I think no. it's got to be a story. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think up. it. Yeah, I think it feels it feels like one of those deals that has to be a big setup one. Um, like I don't frustratingly know. long. The Funkhauser one is is good. Probably not office acceptable. Well, he does. He have to read the room. Yeah, Funkhauser's just funny. I mean, he was he was just great at at kind of being funny without trying to be funny, which goes back to all the Super Dave stuff. That yeah. was just like it was. I don't know. Do you guys? There's no way you remember Super Dave as it was happening. No, I I found out from no. Bill. Did and you go Sal, back? Who were like, yeah, yeah, dude, but Super Dave, watch watch some of these things. So I I watched them. I found another one that was a long setup pirate joke. We should bring in Jeff Garland or Bargazzi again for these. Kind of running by those guys. <laughs> See if they like any of this stuff. Uh, yeah, all right. So, oh, actually, International Talk Like a Pirate Day is September 19th. Mm-hmm. So, might want to put that in the old Microsoft team calendar. See if uh, maybe maybe that's the right day. Or if somebody else in the office is like, hey, it's, it's is it national? It's probably International Pirate Day, right? What did I, I would hope say? so. Yeah, I feel like that couldn't be just pirates yeah, everywhere, it, dude. Yeah, internet. It's definitely international. I don't even know. As I just said it out loud, I'd forgotten what I said. Um, how do how do pirates prefer to communicate eye to eye? <laughs> I love that with this place I found. It's pretty good. There's, there's part <laughs> one, and then there's j- pirate jokes part two. <laughs> Why is uh, pirating so addictive? They say once you lose your first hand, you get hooked. <laughs> I think I got a good one. What's a pirate use a cell phone for? Booty calls. Oh, that one's good. Nice. That one's good. And it's, that actually it's, might land. It's topical. Yeah. You know, it's sort of updated. That's that's what I like about that one. Okay, I have one other one that's a bit longer for a story. Unfortunately, now I'm stuck in this horrible website that won't let me out of it. Uh, you people should be put in jail. It's just a guy trying to Google some pirate jokes here and. You're not, you're not letting me out. Okay, here we go. Um, maybe this is it. Long ago when sailing ships ruled the waves, the captain and his crew were in danger of being boarded by a pirate ship. As the crew became frantic, the captain bellowed to his first mate, bring me my red shirt. Mm-hmm. The first mate quickly retrieved the captain's red shirt, which the captain put on and led the crew to battle the pirate's boarding party. Although some casualties occurred among the crew, the pirates were repelled. Later that day, the lookout screamed that there were two pirate vessels now sending boarding parties. The crew cowered in fear, but the captain, calm, calm as ever, bellowed, bring me my red shirt. Once again, the battle was on. However, the captain and his crew repelled both boarding parties. This time, more casualties occur. Weary from the battles, the men sat around on the deck that night, recounting the day's occurrences, when an ensign looked to the captain and said, sir, why did you call for your red shirt before the battle? The captain, giving the ensign a look that only a captain could give, exhorted, if I'm wounded in battle, the red shirt does not show the wound, and thus you men will continue to fight unafraid. The men sat in silence, marveling at the courage of such a man. As dawn came the next morning, the lookout screamed that there were pirate ships, ten of them, all with boarding parties on their way. The men became silent and looked to the captain, their leader, for his usual command. The captain, calm as ever, bellowed, bring me my brown pants. <laughs> heard that when I was 14. I hope that's not the one, dude, because a lot of people yeah. have heard that one. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of hope it is the one because it was either either has to really land or if it just falls flat, it could be amazing. Well, if you heard it, because if you heard it before, it's a long setup and the and you hear red shirt in like the first three sentences and you're like, okay, I'll I'll take this ride. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, yeah, I read that long one and I 
I didn't think it was great either. But so we're just maybe we're doing this because if he reads this and then gets that reaction from Kyle, who's like, I heard it at 14 years old. I, I fell imagine out if he's listening at 14, though. I thought it was at 14. Genius. You love it. I was, it were you, was genius. Were you working in an office at the time? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not making fun of you, Kyle. I'm making fun of the idea. Oh, that, I, I just yeah, got I just got that. I feel like I got to be on my toes with you when I let you into my life. I feel like there's there's I feel like you're, you're looking for openings for soft jabs. So I just got to be on my on my toes. Are you getting you. sick of the soft jabs? You getting <laughs> sick of them? Why don't you just wind up and really hit me with one? We'll see if I can handle it. I wouldn't want to do that to you. Yeah. They're well. just okay. All right. Um, checking in from the gym. Got a lot of gym people. Here's an aside. Your gym jokes about everybody joining the gym after New Year's, those are more played out than the gyms being busy. All right. Those of us that have been doing this a long time, we we made those gym jokes. You want to talk jokes? We we're doing those 20 years ago, maybe 30. Who knows? I don't know what LA fitness was like in the early 80s. Um, but the Instagram thing, like, oh, look at the gym, it's busy. Find better, find better stuff. Be more creative. We've done that. It's been done. Everybody knows it. And by the way, I'm thrilled there's more people there. Good for them. That's how I look at it. When I was young and a shithead, I'd be like, uh, you know, or look at this guy. Look how weak he is. They're in there. I'm serious. This isn't me just doing a little uh, Tony Robbins on you. They're in there. So give them credit. All right. 59165, an athlete, NAIA. So this can't be real. There's a guy in my gym right now with an actual speaker blasting music while he works out. Mind you, I have AirPod Pros in Flex. Are AirPod Pros the high-end ones, guys? Those yeah. Those are the highest-end yeah, ones? Yeah, I think yeah. those are like the 250. Yeah, I'll tell you what. They're pretty sweet. They really are that good. I got the regulars, and yeah. I feel like it's they only sell them so you can buy them and then also buy the Pros. Mm. One day, buddy. So we sent in a picture, too, of this guy, and he, and he does look pretty serious. He's doing um, full-blown pull-ups uh, and the speaker setup. His hands are big, too, man. So whenever you're going to have a conversation with a guy, always look at the size of his hands. And he's got pretty big hands. They almost look like it's CGI in this. Or maybe because he's doing, he's kind of doing some wide pull-ups too. So I don't know, man. My uh, my instincts are, and he also has some Pedialyte going. God, there's a lot going on here. It's fascinating. Anyway, his move, what he's doing sucks. It's an all-time selfish move. It completely sucks. Invest, if you could buy this Bluetooth speaker, um, and it's really up to the staff. So, you know, again, I don't know what your level of confrontation, what you're comfortable with. There's actually a way you can kind of be like, hey, man, like, is that you're going to be your move? Um, I would probably have to see it a couple times before I might say something. And I wouldn't want to have to tell on them. But it's really if the gym is worth anything, then they go to them and say, look, we can't have again. It's it's the rule of many here. Right. And it's why I really don't like selfishness at times. It's just it's like, OK, so you're down doing your little thing. But you don't care about anyone else. And what if 30 people showed up to the gym with Bluetooth speakers? Like it would be, it would feel like we were in some sort of asylum. So um, not going to work, but I, I don't, I don't, I mean, it sucks that he's doing it, but I don't really know what you're going to be able to do here. Cause it looks like, you know, if the guy's willing to do Bluetooth speaker, he's probably willing to throw some hands too. Yeah. That's, that's the problem. That's where Kyle comes in. I know. I think, I think, 
I think guys leave the house and they're like, I hope somebody tries me for my fucking Bluetooth speaker today. Like even even people <laughs> like on the beach and I would never come out to people on the beach and be like, hey, do you, could you stop ruining everyone's time? But like, I think that they're like, they're hoping that somebody comes up to their group like, hey guys, do you think you could stop? Um, you know, I just, I think, I think you know, what you, you absolutely know what you're doing when you're like, I could get headphones or I could use the speaker. Like it's, it's a, it's a very clear choice. And I just think those people are, are, probably more susceptible to turning a a small disagreement into uh, something physical. Well, here's what you can do, Ryan. This is because I actually really like your advice from last uh, the last episode about like taking the future in-laws to the play and talking through the entire thing just so they know the experience that you're going through. What if you got a couple of guys at the gym to all bring in Bluetooth speakers and you all play them at the <laughs> same time? Day. So that then he then he can't just beat one of you up. It's all of you. He can't just be mad at one of you. It's all of you. It's like a group mentality thing. And then he's like, this is how it feels, dude. It sucks. So stop doing it to us. Yeah. And it has to be just like three, four different things like Pantera. And then maybe <laughs> some of those last songs on the soundtrack, the place between the pines, which I love the soundtrack on top of the movie. Um, yeah, I, you know what's great idea. Now, granted, you know for a decent Bluetooth speaker, you're probably talking 150 bucks, so it's a bit of a bit of investment in the joke. They're great in the bathroom, um, though. So you could if, if you... wait a minute, Bluetooth at the beach, Kyle. You're anti that. I don't know. It depends. It depends on what's going on. Like I, I've seen like a f yeah. I kind of am honestly. If you're if you're on the crowded beach, I kind of am a little bit. Like, and there's definitely a respectable volume, but the, the Bluetooth beach people don't necessarily know what that is. I think. Um, what if they play get rich or die trying like front to back again, again, I look around and when I see that there's like, there's kids, I just, I'm for okay. kids. I kind of, you know, I don't like smoking cigarettes outside in a place where you're allowed to smoke cigarettes. If there's kids running around, I don't, I don't like it on Hollywood. Boulevard, I like that about you in Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> I'll like duck behind an alley if you know, cause Hollywood Boulevard, it's a free for all there's babies and kids. So it's just like, it's kind of, kind of strange to smoke cigarettes on Hollywood Boulevard, but also why are you bringing your kids to Hollywood Boulevard? If you're, you know, whatever, all I'm saying is, um, when there's kids around, that's why beach is unique. Like when, when you, you got two chains talking about all the awesome stuff that he does talk about, um, <laughs> Sometimes I think for seven-year-olds, it's not necessarily the best move. So if their you know, parents didn't come there to be exposing them to that, who knows? Yeah, I think there's, you know, as, as somebody that likes to, actually the beaches here, it still blows me away that they're always empty. But um, yeah, the full-blown Bluetooth at the beach thing, like there are times where you're like, okay, but I, you know, I don't really. If you're not like 30 yards away from the next guy, you know, that's what I mean. Like if you're right next to people and you're like, this is, you know, sorry, it's a crowded beach day, but we're still going to do our thing with no regard for how close we are to everyone else. It's just annoying. Yeah. If you're right on top of somebody else, then it's a little different. But if it's a packed weekend deal and, you know, you want to do a little EDM, I don't know. I'm, I'm sometimes I'm anti telling people to stop having a good time within reason. Um, right. There's a there's a building above mine where there's a roof deck and I love my neighbors and they had, I guess their kids were there for a weekend and they raged all weekend, like went for it. Music late in the night, unbelievable setup. And then the parents called me because I'm in my forties going, you must've been so mad. And I was like, no, I was pumped for him. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't bother me. I barely heard it. I was like, I sort of heard it. And it sounds like they went pretty late. And they're like, well, someone called the cops. They thought it might've been you. I was like, I'll be the, I can promise you this. I'll, I'll be the last guy to call in for a noise violation for somebody else. Yeah, I'll so. be annoyed and I'll hate you, but I won't tell you to stop. That's how I go. Yep. 
I wasn't even annoyed and I didn't, I was happy for him because it was, you know, peak COVID. And I just thought, Hey, I think it's cool. These guys are getting together and, and having a good time and, and using their parents' house. If they did it every single weekend. Yeah, it would probably grate on some people, but I think somebody else called the cops on because they were loud, but I, it wasn't me. And I told them straight up, it'll never be me. The gym thing. It just is up to your own acceptable level of confrontation. If you're not a confrontational person based on this picture of this guy in his hands, I would say probably no. Um, but yeah, maybe the Bluetooth speaker, you could do that organized, but seriously, but again, some gyms, people care and some don't. I've been to gyms where people that work there take pride in it. And then I've been to other gyms like that last one I was at in West Hartford towards the end. I couldn't fucking believe how little anyone cared. And the funny thing is I actually liked a lot of the people that worked there. So I never really wanted to say anything, but you would just see people just not care at all. And then I got so mad. I tweeted out a photo of it. And the hilarious thing was then the New York affiliate has, has nothing to do with me called to complain about me tweeting out a picture from this health club. And then I got yelled at about it. And I was like, do you care more about the New York affiliate thing that has nothing to do with me? And they were basically like, yes. I was like, okay, cool. Cool then. Um, all right. One more. This is about mortgages. This is about, um, about money. And, uh, you know, I think it's a really good question, but I, I think it's a pretty easy answer. I'm not sure the emailer is going to love my answer here. I would think most people are going to agree with me on this one, but you never know. All right. Uh, six, three weight air scale maxes at 400. Not ideal. All right. That's yep. It's all right, man. You're funny too. Listen to the Willie Cologne pod. You can, you can do it. Uh, you recently talked about people living together and deciding the proper division of rent and utilities. Yes, we were talking about um, a guy that was going to potentially marry his girlfriend that was going to move in. Uh, I've been roommates with a coworker for six years. We've worked together for four years before rooming. We've split all the utilities and mortgage payments 50-50 since day one. In that time, the value of the house has likely doubled, then 200000 now 400000 Based on estimates from reality site or <laughs> reality sites, from realty sites, Zillow, Realtor, et cetera. Um, look, I have a property on a Zillow that's listed on Zillow. The Zestimate is like 25% higher than the price that we just closed at. So, you know, um, Zillow realtors hate Zillow. We all like looking at Zillow. Um, I enjoy looking at it, but I try not to go. I try not to be married to the Zestimate. All right. (laughs) I think that's a. It's a fair line. Yeah. Some realtors right now are in their car going, fucking finally, somebody fucking said it. Yeah. My wife hates it. She's pumped right now. So there you go. Okay. I plan to move out in the next year because I should probably grow up and find my own place at some point, considering I just hit 30. You mentioned that for a soon to be married couple, the contributions are investment in their future. This made me question whether I should feel entitled to some of the compensation for my years of mortgage contributions, since I won't be there to reap the benefits in the future. I didn't plan on asking for anything on my way out because we have a pretty smooth time as roommates. We've had a pretty smooth time as roommates, and I'm happy that he made a smart investment and bought when he did. I was the one pushing him to buy when he did, though. Interested to hear your guys' thoughts on the situation. Side notes for possible follow-up questions. My time sharing a house has been great. No unreasonable rules or requirements. Treated like family. He has uh, steep child support payments, um, and he would struggle to afford the house without somebody else contributing, which he's saying is a big reason why he stuck around and paid rent. Um, The money would be nice, but I'll be fine without it. Um, Here's the deal. Uh, I, I get where you're coming from, right? 
this is, I think, a very classic example of, well, I'm, I'm seeing this my way and I'm not really seeing it that person's way. But my simple answer is no, I don't think you're entitled to anything. This is part of the agreement. He owns the house and he wanted to help with his payments and you needed somewhere to live. And that was the transaction. And that was it. It was never discussed ahead of time. Um, your friends, your roommates, um, you know, there's nothing that leads me to believe there's anything beyond that. And, you know, if I'm him and you were to ask me like, Hey, can I get a little something maybe on the way out here? Um, I would, I would, I would actually be pissed. Yeah, because I'd say first of all, we never talked about this, and be like, "Were you there coming up with a deposit?" I don't know what his deposit was. You know, generally on this kind of transaction, maybe a two hundred thousand. He didn't have to go the full twenty percent, but that's something for him to have had to put aside to save to go ahead and do the deposit, which I doubt you were involved with. I doubt you were involved with any of the paperwork. You know, the seven times you think you're fucking done, and then somebody goes, "Hey, what's up with this thing in your checking?" Or, hey, how come your gas bill was late 60 days in 2013? Um, that stuff sucks. It sucks. And you didn't have to do any of that stuff. So the other part of this is, let me put it to you this way. If he bought it for 200000 and Zillow said it was worth one seventy five, would you cut him a check when you moved out? Of course you wouldn't. You'd be like, what are you kidding me? This is your house. You know, you're also on the hook for any of the maintenance uh, as the owner, I doubt you paid any property taxes or you could factor that in and say, well, that covered part of the mortgage thing, depending on how he packages the whole thing. But he's on the hook to maintain it. He's on the hook for the property taxes. He's on the hook for the deposit. He's on the hook for all of the bullshit that goes through having to buy a house because it's just hard to do because they don't just go, hey, we trust you. Here's your, here are your keys, which again, makes sense. So as much as I can appreciate you kind of having that moment where you go, whoa, wait a minute. Like I kicked in 50% of the mortgage, you know, like maybe I should get a little something on top of it. We don't even know if he's selling the house. So what's he supposed to do? <laughs> like, Hey, let's agree on a number and I'm going to give you like 10 grand or five grand. And by the way, that's the other thing is if things are tight for him and he has these child support payments, do you know how much it sucks in a house that he's not even selling? Cause I don't think you've mentioned at any point that he's going to sell that he's supposed to. And I'm going to guess like five or 10 grand would sting. Totally. So he's supposed to just out of nowhere be like, yeah, hey, here's a check because potentially my house is going to be worth a lot more and you paid rent towards me. So this is a massive, massive no for me. And I wouldn't even ask. Um, but you, but people do. People do. Um, I think being roommates is different than if you're talking about somebody that you're going to be starting a family with. I, so I, I don't think that they're the same. And I'm honestly surprised that you, when you listened to what we were talking about, <laughs> that then you were like, Hey, this house is worth more on Zillow. Maybe I'll ask this guy about it. So I remember I had a friend who was paying a pretty steep rent for a nice house in a nice area. And, you know, kids, the kids were in the right school. He wasn't sure how long he was going to be living in the area. And I was, I said, Hey, did you end up buying this? He goes, no, but you know, I'm hoping maybe after two years of paying rent that mm -hmm. we can work something out with the owner. And I'm like, what are you high? Like that, that doesn't, it's not time doesn't served, work now. You don't get time yeah, served. This, it's <laughs> not the way it works. Like if, if I own a house and somebody's paying rent for two years towards it, let's say, I don't know, let's just throw a round number on it. Say I own a house and somebody's paying three grand a month. So now we're at 36, we're at $72,000 that they've paid me in rent. 
in that time, I've still had to keep up maintenance. I've still had to pay my mortgage on it. I've still had to pay property taxes on all of it. And then say the house is worth $500,000, right? And then the guy after two years of paying me rent says, hey, I'd like to buy the house. And I go, okay, well, you know, make me an offer. Let's figure out something that works. Okay, but first I'd like the price to be $72,000 less because of the rent that I've paid. And be like, hey, those weren't mortgage payments, man. Those are rent payments. So when my friend was like, I'm hoping to work out something with the owner of the house because of all the rent that I paid towards it. Again, not impossible. It depends a lot on the market, maybe the owner wanting to move off of the house. But you realize if you were to assume that this person could then apply your rent towards the the purchase price of something, then it's like, then what, what, what was I just doing? Let you live there for free <laughs> for a couple of years? Like that's, what's, what, what are we talking about here? So we can get very one-sided with the way that we perceive things. But in this instance, I would say uh, this isn't even debatable for me. Uh, And I'm I'm sure somebody will chime in and say, well, actually, this one, I'd be like, no, I'm not changing my mind on this one at all. So again, I wasn't trying to be harsh. I just, I don't, I think you're totally off on this one. Kyle? Yeah. uh, As you know, a big Judge Judy fan, this is like the the, uh, defendant's countersuit of uh, harassment or defamation or emotional suffering. It gets baseless and it gets thrown out in two seconds. Jesuity's like, no, I don't, I don't care. I don't care about your emotional suffering. How often has anyone ever in Judy's court for defamation? Who's well, it's what always, level of defamation are we talking about? It's always about so here? funny because it's always Facebook and it's like, it's like, you know, somebody's hair salon. He's like, <laughs> don't go there. She fucked my hair up. She stole from me. And then he's like, that's defamation. It's like, no, you fucked up her haircut. And so that's not defamation if it's true. And he's like, yeah, but I lost business. And she talked to my cousin and told my cousin that, that I'm not, I'm no good at hair. And so it's always like, it's baseless. And it's just like, I, I get it. And all the, for this guy, it's like, yeah. All right. So you've been living there, but let's say a tree crashed through the garage while you're living there. The rent, you, the renter isn't, isn't involved in, in repairing that. If the basement floods, you, the renter isn't that like, just because you have a place to live. I mean, that's the nature of renting. Like you, you have nothing to show for it, but you have all the freedom to leave when you're deciding it's time to get your own place. So that's the trade-off. And you just you didn't have any of the stress of having to own this house and keep it running while while um, you were living there. So that's that's why you don't get any of the good stuff when you decide to stop renting again, unless unless it was some sort of 50 50 deal where if the water heater thing came up, he threw in some cash. You know, I'm I'm trying to have he would any have kind of that, though. Yeah, would, I, like that would be on his side. Like, that would right. be a case for why he would he would. And he hasn't made that case. And it gets it goes back to the point where your buddy i'm sorry he took on all the risk man like I, I know you helped him out and you were paying rent and that's great but it's not like he's pocketing whatever your rent money is every month as you said ryan he took on the risk he made the investment at the time and even if you're even if he could have not have done it on his own because he needed you know a roommate and you to to live there that you're just kind of shit out of luck man that's kind of it's, it's kind of like business owners right like they're the ones like when these ceos and they blow up these companies blow up and they make all this money well they took the risk to start this business too like that you know that's it's not like anybody could have done that um, so I kind of look at it the same way. And unfortunately you're kind of just shit out of luck here. Yeah. I have a really hard time with, you know, when people, people get pissed at other people being successful at starting a business and you just go, do you realize how hard it is to do what this person did? I mean, and I'm not talking about the, we work bullshit and, you know, some of these other things that we all read about and I'm fascinated by these, but more often than not, it's okay. What were you doing? And, and people don't understand the beginning. They don't see the beginning. They don't see all the hours. They don't see all the other stuff. And then they see some headline about how much money somebody made. And then it just becomes, oh, that guy, 
know, mm-hmm. like, what did you think they did? He was walking down the street. Somebody just cut him a check. Um, so anyway, that's it. I think that's the podcast. I think yeah. we're good here. Please subscribe. Ryan Russillo podcast, Ringer, Spotify. Thanks to Kyle and Steve. Kyle, who's who's your favorite judge? To least rank the judges, rank the TV judges. Uh, okay, it's Judy Mathis. Uh, I like Judge Hatchet. She's not really doing it. She's not on the same level anymore. Um, hot bench is three judges, and I really like that. So it's gonna go Judy. Why is it hot Ma- bench? What happens? I don't know. Judy's an executive producer on Hot Bench, but there's three judges, and they kind of gang up on the person, and then they go into their chambers and deliberate. Uh, after like two commercial breaks, and then they come back and and announce it. So it was like Shark Tank for legal issues. Yeah, kind of, but they kind of, they retire to their chambers and then talk about it. And then the one guy's like, well, I dissent. So they come back and, and it's three. So somebody always gets overruled, but it's, it's a good show, but I, I put them all. How hot are they? There's one, there's one judge that's pretty hot. The other one's like sort of milfy. I can't even say that. I got to hold on. I, she's, 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 she's an older woman who's, who's beautiful. And then, um, oh, and then okay. there's, and then there's a guy who's looks like I'd have a beer with. So those guys a are great. Stif- Stifler's mom action. Yeah. And then or? the people's court judge Millian. I've had a crush on her since I was like 15. Uh, but she's number four now. I got to ask you then, if you're an expert on this, we could probably do 20 minutes with Kyle on this. We won't do it right now because the podcast is over. But um, is Steve Harvey even licensed to do this? Definitely what, what, what were the not. protocols? Yeah. What were the protocols here with Steve Harvey? Definitely not. I mean, this, I think it's, if you if you listen to the actual uh, intros, I haven't watched this show yet, but you best believe I will. If you listen to the intros of all of these, it's like these people have a case pending in civil court and they've agreed as to have this person be the mediator, basically. So none of these things are actually courtrooms, mm. obviously. So they all just sign a contract that whatever this person, person X decides is what we'll do. And then they have like a, a limit of up to like $5,000 is all that they can be on the hook for. So you can you can sign that contract for anybody. I could do it. I could be there. And they just Judge signed a contract. Kyle? Yeah. I'd watch that. Did, watch and they that get paid for this? Did they get paid I for think going they, on? They get appearance fees, I'm pretty sure, because once okay. Judge Judy like hated one guy, she's like, and she's like, first of all, he was, I think he was the defendant. And he's like, you're gonna, you're gonna pay the maximum uh the five thousand dollars that we could put you on the hook for. Also, did you did you get an appearance fee for coming today? He was like, Yeah, she's like, Well, you're not getting it. And uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> classic Judy. Yeah. I don't even know if she could do that, but I do know classic that, Judy. I think that's why people would agree, because they they'd probably get some sort of appearance fee to f- fly from yeah. Wisconsin to come here and be berated by Judge Judy. But yeah, embarrass yourself on television. I'll just say it. I don't like Judge Judy. That's wow. a shame. Why not? I haven't, just don't like her. Don't like her vibe. No, no nonsense. That's the thing. The legal system can't always sniff this out, but she can see when a guy's being dishonest. She's no nonsense, dude. Yeah, I don't know. I think she plays favorites. I was out on her. I, I watched. Well, do your research before you show up and know what to be. Don't don't talk over her. You know. I get that part of it. I, I respect. Don't interrupt respect the, when someone's telling a story. The position. Yeah, but I don't know. I think she sort of kind of sizes somebody up, and then that's why the show works. Yeah, she just sizes somebody up. I'm, I'm more courtroom doesn't really work like that guys <laughs> oh no yeah we'll Sick. never be watching a marathon the, of Judy of the judicial yeah. system yeah i mean seriously <laughs> you guys think that's how it works fine <laughs> okay that is the end of the podcast <laughs> swear to god <laughs>